It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning to you, PJ. Back with you tomorrow. Uh, lovely to be here again for my second show this week. It's Gareth O'Callaghan on the opinion line. 083 396 Now, lots in the newspapers today. The Irish Examiner continuing their look back. A retrospective view of 1984, 40 years ago. We'll take a look at that. Some very interesting uh, and poignant headlines and stories in there. That's coming up very, very shortly. But we'd love to hear from you. If uh, you want to get in touch with us, let us know how you are if there's something you'd like to chat with with us about 083 396 96 96 now a post-mortem is to be carried out on the body of a man taken from the harbour in Cove yesterday and Mairead Tuhik has the latest what can you tell us Mairead so far Hi, good morning, Gary. The uh, post-mortem, as you say, um, will be carried out on the body of a man who was recovered in Cork Harbour yesterday afternoon. Now, Gary, they have confirmed to us that this discovery was made at Rushbrook near Cove and that a file is to be prepared for the coroner's court. So involved in the recovery operation, there was the Coast Guard units, uh, volunteer boats and the Department of Transport have told us that a formal identification of the body is awaited. Now, agencies such as Mallow search and rescue at Cork Missing Persons. They'd been carrying out a search up the Riverley in Cork and that was underway since before Christmas and uh, yesterday as they say the body of a man uh, was recovered in Cork Harbour yesterday afternoon. So I suppose first and foremost foremost, my thoughts and uh, sympathies go out to the family and as they say a formal identification um, of the body is awaited. Indeed. Uh, Now, there have also been some developments this week in the Tina Satchwell case. What can you tell us about this case and where it's at now, Mairead? Yeah, there has been. So uh, 57-year-old Richard Satchwell um, appeared by video link in court yesterday at Clonmel District Court yesterday morning. And he was previously charged with the murder of his wife, Tina Satchwell, on March 20th, 2017, at a location in Cork. Now, the Garda file um, the court heard yesterday in the case is at an advanced stage and will be with the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, by the end of the week. Now, Mr. Satchel, Richard Satchel was charged with murder after Garthi found the skeletal remains of his wife Tina in October of last year, so October 2023 only, a short few months ago, uh, while excavating a concrete floor and walled up area underneath the stairwell of their home in Grattan Street in Yall. And yesterday, Superintendent Adrian Gamble told Judge Brian O'Shea in court that Garthi had handed over the file on the murder to the state solicitor for South Cork jury 
Healy. And what Superintendent Gamble told the court is that he can ensure uh, the court that the entire file is with Mr. Healy. He said he personally oversaw that and he's assured, um, Mr. Healy is assured, Superintendent Gamble, that the file will be with the Director of Public Prosecutions this week. Now, Judge Brian O'Shea said, you know, and noted that uh, Richard Satchel had been in custody for over 11 weeks and he said, you know, I know the investigations, they're complex, but he said that you don't have to have all the bells and whistles attached before the file can be sent to the DPP. Now, what Superintendent Gamble told the court is that, you know, the file contained expert reports which were outside the control of Gardaí. Uh, Judge Brian O'Shea then asked Defence Solicitor Eddie Burke if Richard Satchel would consent to either a three or four week remand. But Mr Burke said that his client, Mr Satchel, consented to a two week long remand. So Judge Brian O'Shea has uh, remanded Richard Satchel in custody to appear again in Clonmel Court on the 16th of this month. So the 16th of January. And uh, Mr. Satchwell, who now has a full beard, will appear in court by video link on that date. Now, I understand that the court was also told that Gardzi will return the keys to the Grattan Street property in Yall to the Defence Solicitor's Office. Isn't that the case? That's it, yeah. So Eddie Burke uh, made an application under the Police Property Act uh, for 1897 for the return of the keys to Mr. Satchwell's home at Grattan Street in Yall. And that is the property where the of Tina Satchel was recovered. Um, now, Detective Sergeant Jared uh, O'Shaughnessy from Middleton Garda Station told the court that uh, Mr Satchel's house it was no longer deemed a crime scene and that the keys would be returned to the solicitor of the accused. Um, and I suppose just uh, looking back on previous court sittings, you know, Richard Satchel was previously denied bail at a high court sitting at Cloverhill Court and Gardaí objected to bail at that instance saying that the accused was a flight risk. And in Using that application, Judge Siobhan Langford said that Richard Satchel faces very serious charges. She said the most serious charges on the uh, criminal canon. Um, and I suppose going back even further, Richard Satchel, you know, first appeared in court last October, the 14th of October. You know, that was in connection with the alleged offence and a uh, uh, Detective Garda Kelleher at that time, David Kelleher, told the court, you know, that Mr. Satchel had been formally charged with the murder of his wife in the Cove Garda station the previous day. Legal aid granted um, in the case as well. So, um, so yeah, so the latest in this case is that the Garda file is at an advanced stage, will be with the DPP by the end of the week, and uh, that Richard Satchel has been remanded to appear again before Clonmel District Court on the 16th of January. Okay, Mairead, thank you for updating us on that. Uh, have a good day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gareth. Thank Take you. Care. Take care. 0833 96 96 96. That's uh, our number if you'd like to get in touch with us, as I say, today. Now, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, the Irish Examiner this week uh, has been looking back. It's very interesting, actually. 1984, a seminal year, as we mentioned yesterday, uh, but but some awful, awful tragedies this year. Uh, Rosita Sweetman talks about the death of Anne Lovett in Granard in County Longford. Uh, she was 15 years of age. So many of you will remember this. And her baby Patrick, that was in, in this particular month that year. Uh, her death and the death of her little boy happened in uh, in freezing wind and rain at that 
famous grotto in granite, which many of you will know, particularly, it's it's not in the town itself, it's on the outskirts of the town, uh, but a, a country that had swapped centuries of brutal colonialism for rule by the celibate clerical elite of the Catholic Church, where sin, sex was the sin, women were responsible. Uh, and it's uh, it's quite a shocking reminder of a country that we used to live in, where no one, no one dared to question the authority of the church for fear of reprimand on so many levels. And uh, the unspoken rule was say nothing, see nothing, hear nothing. And uh, it's, it's, it's frightening to think that that's only 40 years ago. Also, uh, the Cork Examiner from 1984 from this week, uh, how he acts to expect uh, to expel O'Malley. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Ballyporeen does it in style. There's Ronald and Nancy Reagan arriving on Air Force One. Around about 8.30pm that uh, that particular evening in Dublin and they're greeted by the various political dignitaries of the time. And then there's um, the story of Gerry Adams, the Sinn Féin MP at that time, shot and wounded by gunmen who struck as he drove away from a Belfast court during the lunchtime recess. Uh, plenty to read on of the year as well. And those of you who will remember Nicky Kelly jailed for a crime uh, he claimed he did not commit. That was the 1976 Salins train robbery and he was freed from Port Leisha prison on the morning of 18th of July 1984 uh, some interesting memories um, 500 top ESB jobs may go, labour threats to pull plug, they were all very very big stories and musically that year uh, Never Again Vows Slain, the future of Slain Castle, this is 1984 as a major rock venue is in serious doubt after the County Meath village was the scene of a vicious riot on Saturday night furious local residents swore yesterday, uh, that was on the 5th of July that year, that they would not tolerate another concert on their front door. Amazing. I mean, uh, uh, a, a rock concert riot wouldn't make the front pages of any of the newspapers, I would imagine, anymore. Uh, elsewhere in the newspapers today... A uh, couple of stories we'll come back to later. I don't know what your views are on Operation Transformation. It's back in telly tonight. We're going to talk more about this a little later. It returns to the TV. Five new leaders hoping to motivate the nation. Uh, the final leaders have been revealed, including a stay-at-home mother of three from County Meath and a cancer survivor from County Limerick who has overcome heart troubles. Um, and uh, the seventh, 17th series of the programme, which was originally presented by Jerry Ryan, kicks off at 9.35pm on RTE1. I'd love to know what you think of it. Uh, is it still a case of fat shaming? Have we moved beyond this? I was racking my brain coming in this morning, and I don't think there's another television station in Europe that has a serious, uh, like, operation transformation. Um, and I, I, I just... I don't get it personally. Uh, I find it uh, objectionable. I don't agree with it. Um, is it fit for purpose? If you pardon the pun, let me know what you think. 083 396 96 96 if you'll be watching it. Or maybe you'll go next door to uh, the new series of The Traitors, which I'm looking forward to watching later on tonight on BBC One. The sale of vapes and e-cigarettes to children has been banned in Ireland. I'm not sure whether you recall this since December 2022, but that has not stopped the use of vaping in schools. And I'm joined now by Aaron Wolf, who's principal at CBS Colosh, the Eamon Reach. Good morning to you, Aaron. 
Good morning, Gareth. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, I, I, I remember when the ban was brought in, I remember thinking this is going to be very, very difficult to police. You obviously agree. Oh, well, absolutely. I, you know, um, I, I'm sure most principals and teachers agree that the ban hasn't been effective, you know, um, really so far in schools because um, vaping has been it has been massive. You know, it's it's, mm. it's, it's huge at the moment. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's it's absolutely sweeping through schools. And are students openly vaping in, in the school grounds? No, they wouldn't be openly vaping. Absolutely not. No, no, no. They'd, they'd be they'd be far too well behaved to do that. But you know, it, it it's taken the place of what would have been smoking. You know, you would never catch a student smoking these days. It would be. I I can't remember the last time we had a student who was actually smoking. But now vaping in the bathrooms is the new big thing. You know, right? And, and um, obviously, the, 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 there's a very different smell. You can instantly identify a cigarette, but uh, it depends if if it's strawberry or caramel or orange tinted. <laughs> Um, but, but this would make vaping so much difficult to yeah. to police because in in the old I'm saying in the old days, geez, and it's not even that long ago. If you'd catch a smoker, you know you'd, there'd be the distinctive smell. You'd even see the paraphernalia. You know you'd be able to spot the box of cigarettes in the student's top pocket. You'd catch a lighter. But now with a lost Mary or a, a elf bar, they can they can hide them so quickly. Yeah. You know, you could have something in their pencil case even. And yeah. you, you, a lot of these things, you wouldn't even know they are a vape. Well, Aaron, um, st- so stay, stay with me just for a minute, because I've got Peter Hyde, who's uh, the deputy principal at Edmund, Edmund Rice College in Carrigaline. Good morning to you, Peter. Morning, Gareth. Um, it, it, this, it, it's, it's a huge problem, isn't it, for, for both of you and for the teachers in, both of the, in all of the schools, really, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. And like what Aaron is saying there, I would have noticed it's been been a long time since I actually caught somebody in a school smoking a cigarette um, but obviously now what's after replacing that is students vaping and what's after striking me is just the sheer increase I think in the numbers of students that are actually vaping um, I suppose just to give a bit of context for this obviously there's the, the, the ban and the sale of the e-cigarettes and vapes um, Two, two students, you know, or two people under 18, I should say. I'm not too sure whether that will work. And I suppose from, I suppose really looking at it, uh, what we'd be concerned about in school, and obviously schools trained with an awful lot of problems uh, that face young people, is just the sheer rise of this, of vaping, and the addictive nature of vaping. I was looking, before I was talking, or before I came on to talk to you, I was looking at, they did a survey in October 2023 um, of 4,000 teachers in the UK and uh, 85% of those that surveyed said vaping is a problem in the school premises. And I don't see why it would be any different here in Ireland because anecdotally, that's what we're hearing uh, from other principals and deputies. And with 75% of those 4,000 teachers saying that the issue had grown in the past year. And even things like below in school, uh, I'd have some teachers and yearheads who are now saying to me, they're saying, some of the students are leaving classrooms on a regular basis on the premise of going to the toilet and they think that they're actually having to go to vape, that such is the addictive nature of these vapes, that they actually have to go to get a puff. Um, and then that they come back maybe into class and if you're, if you're vaping, that this has an effect. The, the addictive nature of nicotine uh, diminishes concentration in class. Mm. So I think this is a real problem that we're seeing on the ground. It's not just a case of students vaping, um, you know, from a school point of view and the problems that brings with it, but it's about the whole addictive nature, I think, of vaping. And of course, 
I mean, if you're, uh, as Aaron said there, you, you smell the, the cigarette smoke of the students' clothes and stuff like that. All these vapes now, the, the flavours that are out there, I counted 40 flavours last night on, a, on a, a website, an Irish website, that students now can actually get for vaping. So you have to question, who's all this aimed at? And undoubtedly it's aimed at youngsters, the way mm. they're packaged. Mm. But I, the shops are clearly still selling them to, to, to the individuals who now uh, 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 fall under, under this ban. Isn't that the case, Aaron? Well, it most certainly is. I mean, and, you know, we're talking about it being a school problem. You know, it's a parental problem. You know, I think parents will have to really step in here and ensure their children aren't vaping, you know, to follow down that route. Because as Peter's saying, like addictive, uh, the addiction to nicotine is bad enough. But at, at their age, at a teenager's age, their brain is still developing. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the facts and figures are there that vaping does um, intrude on the development of brain and, and, and your function there to concentrate in class. So it, it is a huge problem. And um, the shops need to take responsibility. Parents need to take responsibility as well. I mean, teenagers get their money from their parents, you know. And uh, I'm not sure how much vapes cost. Are they ten euro or something like that? But parents were to you know, to monitor that and say, well, where where are you? What are you spending your money on if your money's gone already? Yeah. So you know, yes, schools we have a we have a responsibility, but the family that the the parent is the primary educator always, and it's it's these things like we often hear. Well, this is something schools can sort out. You start at home really with a lot of these things, and parents have to really make sure their children aren't vaping, like we all did when smoking was a big thing. Yeah, uh, one of the most popular of the vapes, particularly among teenagers, is the Elf Bar, isn't it? It, it looks very like a highlighter pen. Absolutely. Well, you'd and you'd see them everywhere, and these little there's a little small one then called a Lost Mary, which is tiny. Mm. And it look the look of that one, I think, really looks as if it's aimed at children. You know, it's a it's a little design fits very small into their hand, impossible yeah. to find, but you find them everywhere. Absolutely everywhere, and I'm not even sure about you know how they throw them away then because the battery in them can they go into the normal bin or you know should they be kept aside for a wee bin you know I think some um, of the, the more so difficult the, yeah I think the more sophisticated ones are rechargeable. <laughs> well, I, I know this, this, it's the disposable ones. I think the students are mostly buying though. Yeah, would I be right, Peter? There, and um, would you find that or? Yeah, it's nearly all disposable. Even the vape uh, retailers themselves will say that the disposable ones, even amongst adult vapors, are far more popular because there's no messing with filling them up and charging them and all that. So, like, the Lost Mary brand, as Aaron has mentioned there, which, you know, um, uh, and Elf Bars, did you get them for about €8? Euros? They could be inside a student's pencil case, and you wouldn't even realise that because I've seen these in schools. They look like, uh, in all tall effects and purposes, like... Uh, like a biro or a highlighter pen, you know, you wouldn't even, the first time I saw one, I had to ask, what is this, is this a pen? And the students were laughing, I mean, they said, no, sir, that's uh, an elf bar now. So for eight euros, and some of these, I mean, you, when you look at them, like I see, uh, again, you go back to the whole thing of the flavours and the way that they're packaged and who they're aimed at, and then, you know, you can get them a watermelon, lemon, strawberry and lime, mad blue, blue raspberry, and then you get the, you know, some of these, there's a 600 puff model, of a lost Mary. So you think about that, 600 puffs for eight euros. Um, And of course, unlike, as Aaron was saying there, unlike with cigarette smoke, you know, like, interestingly, the research would show young people know cigarette smoking is bad for them. They don't like it. They don't want to engage in it. There's a bad taste of nicotine through cigarettes. But none of that actually holds for vaping. 
for vaping, as soon as you vape, there is no bad taste for it. So think about it. So strawberry and lime, watermelon lemon, bubblegum candy, all those flavours. What isn't there for uh, the adolescent or young person to like about them? Mm. Um, so they don't see actually any, but yet they do contain nicotine or, or chemical nicotine. And as Aaron's saying there, it is addictive and it causes difficulties in terms of uh, for brain development, at least that's what the researchers are saying, that the effect it can have on the developing brain of young people. So all of these are, I suppose, issues that we're facing in schools. Um, but as Aaron is saying there as well, I would say, and go back to parental responsibility, but I'd say some parents wouldn't even realise that maybe their, their uh, young person at home is vaping mm. uh, because it's not the same as smoking. Um, but I think, like I said, it's, it's, it's an issue. It's a growing issue. Uh, I would have found in schools that the amount of students vaping um, really has exploded over the last couple of years, you know, I think. Uh, and how, how young are the students when they're vaping, Aaron? Oh, I think they're vaping. Like it's, it's very, as Peter's saying there, it's, it's very attractive. Mm. Um, so, like, look, at the role of the principal, I don't actually catch any vapors. You know, that'd be the jobs of the deputy principals in the school. But uh, you can see it when you're out and about, people vaping, you know, uh, very young. I think when they maybe second year and up. But it wouldn't surprise me if first years were vaping because it is very, very attractive. And in talking to students, it's become very normalised. They don't see any problem with vaping. You know, it's not, as Peter's saying, it's not smoking. Um, so it's okay. It's the cool thing. It is cool. Well, they think it's cool to do. You know what I'm saying? It's cool to do. That's their belief. It's cool to do. It's normal to do. There's a lot of peer pressure. We've all been teenagers. We all know what it's like to be open to peer pressures and how young people do want to fit in. And when they are vaping and they're looking at other people vaping and thinking, well, there's, there's nothing wrong with this. It's not bad for your health. But it is bad for your health. And we need we need to go back to that standard where we're, we're you know, it's being taught to them that yeah. uh, vaping is bad. It is ba- it is as bad as smoking. And my concern would be that it would be a gateway to smoking, that if you're likely to vape in the future when they're out in college or whatever and they suddenly get offered a cigarette and they say, look, I'll just make that step. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a, a, number, and of scientists, a number of scientists have come out lately to say that the toxicity effects on a long-term basis are still relatively unknown. But they believe that there's a very strong possibility that depending on how frequently and how heavily you vape, they, they, the effects could be worse than cigarette smoking. And this is it. I was. I, mean, we, I took my own children to my. Well, I took the children to the dentist recently, and the dentist was saying that the the the, the for your teeth, vaping is far worse than any cigarette smoke would be because of the chemicals you're putting into your body. Yeah, and they're also worried about the, the effects of it on you know the gums and the roof of the mouth and the tongue and that, uh, and and also from the back of the throat effect, the toxicity of these chemicals that they use to flavour the vaping is causing major concern in that whole area. Like if if the if the under eighteen rule is not being enforced, is there a realistic solution here, Peter? Uh, it's a good question, really, Gareth, because some of the experts would say really prohibition. They're not too sure if if that'll work. I know I think it's welcome. Obviously, I think we, Ireland was, I think, lagging behind on this in terms of, obviously, the legislation only came in recently. I mean, I noticed now that actually from New Year's Day in Australia, Australia have actually completely banned vaping. Now, whether it will work or not. And the only way you're going to get a vape now in Australia is you go to actually your doctor and the doctor's going to write your prescription for it because they've looked at this. They 
they've also had an increase in youth vaping. And as you were saying there, Gareth, like when you vape, you're putting chemicals inside into your lungs that haven't actually been, you know, uh, I suppose, used, you know, haven't been inhaled, sorry, 20 or 30 or 40, 50 years. These these chemicals haven't been actually inhaled. So the whole thing of what it does and how it affects uh, people's lungs and their health, that's still, as you're saying, relatively unknown. Going back to, I suppose, an earlier point that you, you mentioned earlier, like they did a study in Sligo in October 23 and they asked 500 young people, Gareth, uh, from the ages of 10 to 24, and they found that about a third between the ages of 13 and 16 uh, said that they currently vape. Uh, and of course... You know, like adults took up vaping to get away from cigarette smoking, you know. Mm. Uh, these young people never smoke cigarettes, so that's important. So they're not vaping because they want to come off cigarettes. Uh, they're vaping because they like vaping. And as Aaron said there as well, you know, it helps them be part of a social group and kind of for social cohesion with their peer group, which is important for them. Um, but... I suppose, going back to actually what's going to work, I'm not too sure, like we try and educate. I mean, when I catch the students in the the, the toilets, which can be difficult, you know, so I, I stand outside the toilets in school, I call them out because I can smell the vapes, I can kind of see the kind of haze. Um, and I, I try and have a conversation with them around saying, listen, this is bad for you. Don't start. Don't, don't get engaged in it, you know. So it's not really about punishing people, even though there's a consequence for people vaping in schools in terms of from a disciplinary point of view. But it's trying to educate young people to say, do not start this because it is going to be bad for you. And they say that if you start vaping, you're five times more likely to actually take up cigarette smoking than if you never vaped. But I mean, in terms of, look, I suppose Minister Donnelly there introducing the ban and the sale of vapes on under 18s, that's welcome. But they're still going to vape. Do you know, mm-hmm. cigarettes were illegal to be sold to young people, and they still smoked in school. Um, but I think it's. I think. I think a lot has to be done as well, Gareth, around not just banning them, but the whole thing of the way they're packaged, that they're out yeah. there, the whole thing of the flavours. So, like some countries have gone down and banned all flavours. So, if you want to vape, the only flavour you should get from vaping is the nicotine flavour, and that might actually help actually keep young people away. But as long as, as long as we are going to allow for these vape products to be there, like really packaged very colourfully, um, they're like sweets, you know? So, yeah. I mean, you have to ask yourself, well, hang on, what's all this about? And of course, it's about profit, isn't it? Yeah. And it's about selling something to uh, a very impressionable market, i.e. young people, who, of course, would be able to find the money, because when you think about it, eight euros isn't a huge amount of money for a 600 puff device um, so I think there's a number of things that have to be done but I think we need to look at it seriously Gareth because otherwise I think what's actually what has happened and what's coming down the road it's going to cause uh, more health issues and there's also reports now that in, on TikTok you know that you can actually get vapes now which have an element of uh, cannabis in them mm. um, and that you can buy these then through a, another site such as Telegram like obviously they're illegal but um, so you're kind of you're wondering kind of in terms of our addiction and and uh, behaviour in the future, what the effect of this is going to be. Yeah, and as they say, anything is available online. Aaron, do you, do you agree that prohibition would not be the way to go? 
when it, I think Peter's Peter's point is very very interesting. Mm. Is the flavours? I mean, vaping was introduced to to help people quit smoking, um, but it's sort of mutated now into something else. But if it goes back to the focus of helping people adults quit smoking, limit the flavour. I mean, there's there's, there's there was no kind of um, mad rush for young people to wear patches or you know to mm. chew nicotine gum. So maybe Peter's right that it just needs to go back to nicotine flavoured um, devices for adults yeah. um, but like to, to ban anything and you know, I'd, be, I'd be of the view that you know prohibition you know adults have a right to choose what they do with their time so you know to ban something outright um, I'm not sure about that because an adult has a right in this country to choose whether they vape or not and to say we're going to ban it just you know I'm not sure about that okay um, I think Watch this space uh, as as it seems. Thank you both very much, and uh, I, I'm sure your holiday your for, for both of you your holidays probably ended a couple of days ago. I'm sure you're back in work already. Uh, and uh, happy New Year to both of you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Aaron Wolf, principal at CBS Colosh, the Eamon Reach, and Peter Hyde, deputy principal at Edmund Rice College in Carrigaline. Thank you both very much. Lots of reaction on that uh, chat I had in relation to the vaping with. Um, Aaron Wolf, principal of CBS Collage to Eamon Reish, and Peter Hyde, who's deputy principal at Edmund Rice College in Carrigaline. I wish both of them, and indeed principals and vice principals and uh, tutors and teachers, uh, a very good year. This is, um, I was reading an interesting article there this morning that uh, I think today is the day that if you're back teaching next Monday, you begin to feel that that sort of classroom stress keep creeping in. But I hope you enjoyed the last couple of days. If you uh, if you're not already back making preparations for the new the new uh, curriculum or the new season. Now, um, our number is 083 396 96 96. We were talking yesterday to um, you might remember it was uh, um, and um, her name has skipped, skipped my attention now, Annette. And Annette was telling us that uh, Mike, one of her neighbours along the road where she lives, uh, living on his own, needed medical treatment. She was trying to persuade him to go to the hospital or to go to the doctor. He wasn't having any of it. And then over Christmas, sadly, he passed away. And she alerted the Gardaí and they confirmed it that uh, he had died alone at home. And uh, four dogs, four beautiful dogs taken into care by the dog warden. And uh, they're now awaiting the release of Mike's body so that they can provide him with uh, a funeral. But there's uh, another story in one of the papers today just to reinforce and remind us of the need to check in on elderly people. A man in his 60s lay dead in his home for up to six months six months before he was discovered after family members became concerned that they couldn't reach him over the Christmas period. The partially skeletal remains were discovered at a home in the Dua area of Listowel in Kerry on Saturday by Gardaí and uh, the remains were removed from the scene to University Hospital Kerry. So, you know, as Annette said yesterday, it's so important that if you have relations or if you have neighbours or if you have friends who might live close by, who might appear to all intents and purposes to be perfectly well, but they're living on their own, and you tend to do become reclusive a lot of the time and you get into a routine where you don't even notice how reclusive you've become. 
particularly if you live on your own, and particularly if you're a fella. So please, just, you know, over the next few weeks, it'll be a very cold, cold month. That's January usually is. Check in with your neighbours and just check to make sure that they're okay. PJ, back with you tomorrow. Gareth O'Callaghan here with you. Beautiful sunny morning here over Cork City and County, and I hope you're well. It's a calm morning. It's cool. It's a bit in the, the nippy side, but uh, it's bright and it's dry and the sun is shining, and it really is a lovely January day. Now, over the Christmas period, Mick wrote on a few Facebook posts that he had not been back home in Cork for 16 years and he would love to come back for a visit. So we said we would catch up with him to see what it is he misses about Cork and how life in Australia is for him. How are you doing, Mick? I'm very well, thanks, Gareth. Thanks for calling me. Thanks for giving me a few minutes of air time. Thank now, what, you. What, what time is the day or night is it over there, by the way? Quarter to nine on the second summer month, so it's a very hot day here. Beautiful blue skies, 30 degrees, 25 degrees now. Wow, so you must be close to Mel- <laughs> Melbourne, are you? Oh, no, I'm in Sydney, so I'm All in right. the western suburbs of Sydney, yeah. Okay, it's 12 hours ahead, right, I see. Uh, so it's yeah. uh, what temperature did you say it is again t- there today? It's 25 now when it was 30 today, so I don't want to put the boot in, but I, though having said that, I wouldn't mind a bit cooler cork weather. that'd be fantastic yeah. for change, actually. Yeah, it's three degrees here at the moment, uh, the sun is shining, there's not a breeze to be had, and it looks magnificent out the window here. It's, um, yeah. and, and the th- thing I love about Cork, you know, having spent all of my summers here as a child, and now that I live here, the, when you look out the window across the city centre, it just, it doesn't seem to change from decade to decade, yeah. it's still Cork. Does that make you a bit homesick? Yeah, it does. And to be honest, Gareth, I actually watch a lot, lot of YouTube. It's a bit sad, actually. So I, wa- I watch those <laughs> videos where people walk around Cork City. So I don't feel like I'm sort of too... I mean, I've been gone, I think, 16 years, but I have noticed it has changed. I mean, there are some cafes out, out and about the streets now. Mm. It's a bit continental, so I think it's a bit, a bit of a change. Yeah. Well, H. Williams is gone. So is uh, Super Quinn and so is Quinsworth. So uh, <laughs> I think... And you, you, would, lost. you wouldn't recognise Patrick Street. Uh, all of those wonderful old shops gone. Yeah. Yeah, Um, That's a bit sad. What are your favourite Cork YouTube channels, by the way? Um, There's a guy called Richie. He does a a food channel. I haven't actually seen one of his... uh, his, videos for a while now but they're actually walking tours 4k walking tours is different channels there's a guy called the uh, dara he's a guinness guru so he's been going around at various pubs i've been watching him especially he's been to cork a couple of times for uh you know trying out guinness beamish and murphy's and comparing them mm-hmm. so i'm looking forward to <laughs> in the oval bar of all places so i'm looking forward to getting there yeah so what what brought you out to sydney uh, all those years ago <sighs> Originally, uh, I was a young guy in 88. I came out for a year, but I decided to say six years because it's so fantastic. And when you're young, you go partying a lot. You go to the beaches. You go traveling around Australia. Stayed six, came back to Douglas. Stayed in Douglas for four years and decided that I think I'd like to spend the rest of my life out here cause just for the lifestyle mostly. And it, I'm just wondering, when you, decide, when you came home, uh, did it yeah. feel as homely as it did in the years you were growing up or, or was something missing? I, because I found when I came home from London, uh, I think yeah. it was in 1987, uh, it, home, here home, just it didn't feel the same anymore. I had to, get, I had to go to America at that stage. <laughs> <laughs> I, it sounds similar, Gareth. I think it's because, I mean, I, I went to school in Deer Park up at Friars Walk, you know, mm. all my secondary there. And I think everybody just went their own way, you know, and I sort of, uh, I lost a lot of, uh, you know, your friends sort of grow up and stuff and you just sort of go your different places. So I didn't sort of seem to hang around with a lot of people, anymore. especially when we came back, we seemed to be on our own, you know, 
So uh, it 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 wasn't really a hard choice after four years to come back. To be honest, because I think it had I think it was the people. I just sort of lost touch with them basically. Mm. And just I'm curious because I know um, my, my daughter actually was living in uh, she was living close to Sydney there just as COVID kicked in, and uh, yeah. she packed her bags and got out as quick as she could. She's back here uh, <laughs> nursing now. Was it as yeah. severe as we were led to believe? Because I know the Australian government really came down heavily on the whole thing, didn't they? Exactly. COVID. I actually was hoping to get home just before COVID. We were looking at flights and then COVID kicked in and obviously the country was, uh, was the borders were shut. It was terrible, actually. I mean, you couldn't even go from one state to the other, especially you couldn't go to WA. That was like a country on its own. Mm. So, yeah, the Australian government were really sharp, sharp on this. And uh, I think that they paid the consequences then by getting kicked out of government. T- tell us about housing over there. Uh, do you do you own your own home or are you renting? No, I'm renting, uh, and <laughs> there's because the market's flooded now with international students and and uh, you know people coming into the country because the economy is fantastic. Uh, there's an undersupply and over demand, so my rent's gone going up fifteen percent next month. Went up eleven percent last uh, last mm. year. It's it's horrendous. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sounding very nosy here, and I'm sorry if that comes across. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated no, no. by uh, by Irish people living in Australia. I suppose yeah. having lived away from so yeah. long. Half of Cork lives yeah. in Melbourne, I understand. Is, is that an accurate uh, number? <laughs> to be honest, Gareth, I haven't been to Melbourne for ages, but I know that half of Ireland is in Bondi yeah. and Bondi Junction and Coogee and all those places in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering then, in relation to wages, you're talking about an increase in, in rent yeah. and that. Are wages good? Yeah. The wages are good, but they don't go up, uh, you know, like, you know, with keeping up with inflation. So, I mean, I don't want to be too personal about my own salary, but it certainly didn't match what I was, the increases I'm paying, you know, increasing in rent and food costs, because it is quite expensive. I I think when Irish people come here, they'll find it's quite expensive. What do you really miss about, what do you really miss about home? Uh, at this time of the year, I actually miss the Christmas lights in Patrick Street, of all things. Uh, I miss uh, the Cork Hollybow. Never got that. Walking down the English market. Back in the day, I used to be able to get uh, Chester cake there or Donkey's Gudge, they used to call it back in the uh, day. Yeah. Uh, what I miss in the summer is the long summer night. So basically here, half eight uh, turns black, uh, you know, in the summer, whereas mm-hmm. in Ireland, yeah, I think you get it gets hot. I mean, sorry, you get the sun until... 10 o'clock, half 10 sometimes. So I miss the long summer evenings and I certainly miss the creamy pints. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the, the, the pub scene there because, I mean, you know, being Irish, like, uh, you know, yeah. it's almost a genetic thing for us, you know, being yeah. gra- gravitating towards Irish yeah. pubs and that. What are the pubs like in Sydney? Yeah. Uh, well, my granddad used to own a pub in Washington, Washington, corner of Washington, South Main Street. And it was an old man's pub back in the day, back in the 70s. Oh, what was the, and what they're was the not, name of it? Billy Lynch's bar. Oh, it yes. was 12 South Main Street. I think yeah. it's a subway now. So I'll be looking forward to going there and having a look. <laughs> uh, but the Irish, the pub scene here is like, to be honest, there, there's a thing called the spice bag, you know, that's been invented yeah. uh, in the Chinese mm. restaurants over there in Ireland. And they've introduced that now to the Irish pubs here. And it's fantastic. But I'm looking forward to a real one when I get back home. But it's just not the same. I mean, we spent all Patrick's Day last year, we spent him in spent in the pub from half eight in the morning till about half eight at night, going through various <laughs> different pubs. It was a yeah. great day, but it's just not the same. Yeah, you know? yeah. And what like the, the 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 Australians like? Did they still love the Irish mm. as much as we believe they did? 
They do, they did, and they do. They love us. They're, they're, they're very similar to us. They have a, a very relaxed, uh, you know, manner about them. They're great for banter. Uh, they're just a good crack, honestly. Yeah. They're fantastic people. I love it. I love it over here. There's loads of different cultures. Uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just a great sort of uh, a cosmopolitan lifestyle here, really. Mm. So have you a family there? Uh, well, my three old uh, children are living in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've all grown up and they decided to move to Brisbane and I married again and my nine-year-old and my wife live in this uh, in, in North West Sydney where we are now. And is she Irish? I'm, I'm beginning to sound no, extremely she's nosy here. <laughs> <laughs> Gareth, you're grand. You're grand. No, she's from Jakarta in Indonesia so oh, I've been to really? Indonesia a few times. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it, that that's a melting pot. It's fantastic. But uh, she hasn't been to Ireland yet so I'm really hoping that we can go next August for two weeks. Yeah. Just introduce the country to her and get around, you know, and just see the light, see what I've been talking about for the last 10 years, you know. Yeah. How did you meet? I presume you met her when you were you were in Jakarta, did you? No, no, no. I met oh. here. She's been here about, oh. Oh, I think, 16 years. I think I met her about uh, 11 years ago, uh, just at work, actually, just casual, casual. Oh, how do you, you know, and you casually bump into people and you have chats and the next day you meet them again and the next day then you don't see them for a week and then all of a sudden it's rekindled. I don't know how these things happen, mate, but <laughs> they just happen, yeah. you know. And I take it your, your young son is looking forward to seeing Ireland. He is, yeah. I keep telling him he's half Indonesian, half Irish. He goes, no, I'm not. I'm Australian. So I, I'm <laughs> hoping to teach him when he gets back, you know. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So when are you going to come home? We're hoping to come back in August, Gareth. That's mm. the plan anyway. Okay. Well, if I'm that's here, just, I'd love to talk to you, but I know PJ would love to talk to you anyway. And uh, I think, you know, when, yeah. when you consider how fast, uh, like last year went by like a, a, a storm, yeah. it was so fast. So hopefully it'll yeah. sweep through to August. And you're, you're obviously picking right, so. the coldest month in Australia <laughs> and the warmest month in Ireland. That's, right. <laughs> that's right. They're pretty similar, Gareth, because I actually like to compare the weather in both cities, Cork and uh, Sydney. And obviously in the, the winter here is awesome now because, you know, I came here for the, for the weather initially that was yeah. one of the reasons but now as I got older I'm quite acclimatised uh, to the winter here which is very similar to the summer in Ireland mm. Have you met many Irish people who have been there you know 20-25 years? Uh, yeah I'm very good friends with the guy at church he's from Tipperary uh, so he's been here a long time I think what happens is Gareth they, they all get sort of Australian Austra- I can't even say the word but you know more more akin to being Australian than, Australian than to being Irish, Irish you know? yeah. yeah that's the word yeah. and I haven't even been drinking today so there you go Australianized yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. uh, finally um, I mean you know Australia yeah. is as big a draw now as you know Boston and New York were back in the 80s for, mm. for, for young people. Mm. Would you recommend us mm. a, a, a spell of life in Australia? 100% Gareth. I mean, the cities here are awesome, you know, all the way from Perth, Adelaide, I've uh, been to Melbourne uh, and Sydney, obviously Canberra, Brisbane, they're fantastic cities. And then it's the gateway then to Asia and there's all sorts, I mean, eight hours away, then you've got all these Asian cities. Yeah. Completely different, you know. Have you visited Bali? Yeah. That seems to be on the itinerary of most Irish people. Yeah. but to be honest, I wouldn't recommend it. All no. oh, right. Wouldn't recommend. Not compared because it is part of Indonesia, but but it's kind of a tourist trap for Aussies, you know, and English and Irish. Whereas the rest of Indonesia is not a tourist trap, so I th- I just found it more. But then, having said that, I went there with the locals, so it was easy for me, I suppose. You know, to speak the language, you know. Mm. Whereas, and, uh, finally, yeah. cost of living in in Sydney is it is it very costly? Is a pint of beer costly? Uh, Oh, I think pint of beer, I think it was about $18 I paid last time, which I don't oh. know how much that is in euros. Uh, Australian but dollars, you could, yeah. I mean, 
<laughs> but I mean, but the transport here is fantastic. It's not that it's not expensive, you know. I mean, the rent is expensive. The house prices to buy is very expensive as well. But I, I mean, I get by, you know. We you know we 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 stashed away a bit there to go back in August, so it's not too bad. Mm. That's you know? a, it's a, a, that's eleven pints. euro, by the way. So eleven euro for a pint, which is quite pricey. Yeah, what's well, <laughs> I, I I tell you, I think most Cork people would give up drinking if the if the pint here went up to eleven. <laughs> Although no, we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> what am no. I saying? Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair I, know, enough. I know a guy who said he'd give it up if it went above two euro. That's some years back now. Oh my god! He's still yeah. enjoying his pints and Murphys, though. You know, Mick. Listen, great to chat yeah. to you, and uh, it's a, yeah, just, thank you. Just wonderful to talk to you, and uh, have a lovely evening there in Sydney. And best wishes to your family, and we'll we'll catch up with thank you again you. when you're home. And Gareth, can I give a plug to the White Horse Guitar Club? My brother-in-law plays for them. I don't don't know if you heard heard oh, of them. Oh, and Colleague, yeah. for the president. Yeah, yeah, they played for the president of Ireland recently. So my sister's married to Donna, oh, and uh, yeah. I said I'd give her a plug because she said you're a really nice guy. She oh, actually said that before I got this call. They've got <laughs> some great stuff on YouTube. I've really enjoyed the music they play yeah. in that. They're really yeah. fantastic yeah. musicians, you know? Yeah, anyway. they are. Mick, look after yourself. Thank try, you, guys. Try to talk to you. Take care. Thank you, mate. See you. Thank ya. you. See you now. That's Mick McCarthy Bye. there in Sydney, in Australia. 16 years without getting home to Cork. Gareth here for PJ. He's back tomorrow after a little break over the New Year's weekend. He'll be with you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, 0833 96 96 96. Now, um, we're always, well, I'm always looking for a way to save uh, the little money I have. And uh, 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 Charlie Weston, the personal finance editor in The Independent today, uh, is talking about... Um, Statements from Martina Hennessy uh, of uh, Doddle.ie uh, to say that it's possible to save more than €10,000 a year by doing three simple things. Switching your mortgage, claiming tax refunds and changing life assurance. This is according to Martina Hennessy, a, a leading financial advisor. Uh, she's the managing director of the mortgage brokers Doddle.ie. She said that if homeowners took just 10 minutes to review their mortgage terms, it could result in them saving a substantial amount. People stuck on a high mortgage rate or those coming off a fixed rate could save up to 7000 a year by switching. Um, uh, just looking down through this article, uh, like when you consider it, €10,000 in your pocket rather than in someone else's pocket, that sounds like a good deal. Uh, she says that the fact that mortgage interest rates rose by over 1.75 percentage points in the past year was a major financial strain for many households and the banks, uh, the European Central Bank hiked its main lending rate 10 times to 4.5% since the summer uh, of 2022. However, banks have passed on only half these rate rises on their fixed and variable rates, but there are fears of more rises to come. So, you, you know, maybe it's worth it. I, I know once once you get your house, you put away the deeds. Well, the deeds are held by the solicitor, obviously. But, you, you know, the, all of the paperwork that you've dealt with with the bank or with the the, um, the investment company, you tend to just want to store that and never look at it again until the day that you feel that, right, I've, I've made my last payment uh, if I'm still alive and healthy and the house is now mine. So I think for many people, the notion of changing their mortgage is just like a bad nightmare and they just don't even want to entertain it. But uh, Martina is saying that, you know, you can save up to 7,000 euro a year by switching so maybe it's well worth looking into 
Now, speaking of owning a house or, or looking for a house or being able to afford to even consider buying a house, the average price of a home in Cork City and County fell slightly in the final qu- quarter of last year, 2023, but prices were up approximately 4% and 6% respectively when compared to a year prior. Ronan Lyons, who's the author of the Daft.ie report and economist at Trinity College Dublin, joins me now. Good morning to you, Ronan. Good morning, Gareth. Thanks for having me on. Nice to chat to you. Um, I, th- this is interesting because while we think uh, we, we might have saved slightly, when you look back at the previous year, that's not the case. Yeah, so, I mean, even nationwide, what we saw in 2023 was a a further increase in property prices. Nationally, they went up by about uh, 3.5%. So that's that's a little over €10,000 on the the purchase price of a home. Uh, Now, when you drill into the different regions, there are different stories uh, around the Dublin area. They tend to be slightly smaller increases year on year. In the northwest in particular, they're still seeing double-digit increases after what you might call the COVID-inspired reshuffling of demand around the country and then as you mentioned in, in Cork in the in the city area prices up almost 4% over the course of the year that's similar to the increase seen in 2022 uh, and in Cork County uh, prices are up about 6.5% and that's a slightly bigger increase um, and in both cases that goes against the grain a little bit most places saw a bigger increase in 2022 than in 2023 but in Cork City slightly and in Cork County a bit more noticeably the increase in 2023 was actually bigger Was there a change in mindset um, of people looking to buy a house in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, we've, we've kind of had two phases of the property market since the outbreak of, of COVID. Um, in the first year and a half or so, so 20, second half of 2020 and into 2021, and maybe even the start of 2022, um, the, the, there, was a, there was a lot of unexpected savings that were funneling their way into the housing market and it pushed prices up. But perhaps the, the key thing was not just that there was more unexpected savings, it was that people in certain sectors had greater mobility, especially if you were in a kind of a, a desk-based job, um, you might have had more um, opportunities for looking at uh, further away or in entirely new locations than you would have done, say, up to 2019. And you can see that, as I mentioned, in the kind of the northwest, they're still going through that. Leitrim prices, for example, are up about 35 or 40 percent in the last couple of years, having not done a huge amount in the previous uh, six or seven years uh, in terms of of increases. That was the first phase. And the second phase you were actually just talking about there is more or less since the, uh, I mean, there there were a few um, earlier indications, but since the invasion of Ukraine, there's been a completely different macroeconomic environment as a return of inflation, um, initially just in energy prices, but then kind of more across the board. And central banks responded by increasing interest rates. And of course, that has a big impact in the housing market. And really, while the new build sector has continued to increase uh, its activities, so there's more newly built homes in 2023 than in 2022. And then that year was up on 2021 and so on. That is improving. But the secondhand market has has dried up a little bit. Just to give you a kind of an overall number on that, mm-hmm. uh, normally, uh, say in the late 2010s, there might have been about 70,000 properties put up for sale over the course of the year. Year. Last year, there were just 50,000. And that's because people are staying put. If they have a good interest rate, they're going to they're stick with that. Because if they go out into the open market, they'll probably have to reset to higher interest rates in the market at the moment. And that's weighing down, I think, on, on supply and demand. Is local property tax a consideration for people who are buying, whether it's in the city or whether it's further out outside the city? 
It, it, it's, a, it's a factor, but it's only really a factor at the margin. There is also stamp duty as well, which mm. uh, it, local property taxes is more something that you, you deal with once you're in and you're like, oh yeah, I, I might have forgotten about that. Um, whereas stamp duty is a more upfront one and that, that you have to pay um, and you have to keep the money aside for like your solicitor's fees when you're, when you're transacting a property. In general, in this country, it's not probably something a, a politician would ever run on as a campaign. But in general, we have low property taxes compared to other countries countries. Yeah. Uh, the property tax at the moment is about 0.1% of the value of the property. In France, it might be a 10 times that. It might be a full 1%. And in many cities in the US, it's a full 1% of the value of the property as well. And the stamp duty, uh, if, I, if I'm right, is 1%. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there are a couple of exemptions around that, but by and large, it's 1% for stamp duty as well. Yeah. In Cork City, uh, Roland, the average price of a home is 337500 Is that up or down? It, so in, in Cork City, that's uh, it's up 3.7% compared to uh, a year ago. It was 325,000, as you say, now it's 337. But it did come back a little bit. So uh, we typically talk year on year. But when you look at the patterns within the year, um, the, the middle of the year saw a big increase in prices or relatively big increase in prices. Um, and they had reached uh, 340,000. And then they fell back a little bit uh, in the last couple of months of the year. That's not unusual that the last couple of months of the year tend to be much quieter in the in the housing market and actually it's around about now in the next two three weeks there'll be a lot of activity or hopefully a lot of activity as people are putting their um, their properties up for sale and compared to that uh, in the county um it, it, it how does the average price range so in the city you're looking at say average of three hundred and thirty seven and a half thousand is it higher or is it lower outside of the city it's it's lower outside the city, so uh, two hundred and eighty seven thousand euro on average, and again down a couple of thousand on the on the previous quarter. But it is up compared to the the same period a year before, and in some ways that that doesn't surprise. You know, the the the, the same kind of property is going to cost more. The closer you are to the the centre, of course, there'll be certain pockets like Kinsale that'll be that'll be a different price point, um, uh, that than, than others. And um, but by and large, the, the the city is more expensive than the county, and but that gap has narrowed a little bit over the, the, the last few years um, as as I say with COVID and other things people have been a little bit more mobile and they're a little bit more prepared to move further away in, in search of good value. And is there still a tendency to want to buy in the city? Uh, you know the, the Desres, the desirable residents? Yeah, I, I think overall, um, well, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty in the middle of 2020 about what was going on. You could see pretty quickly that um, the second half of 2020, Cork City prices shot up quite a bit, especially compared to Dublin. Um, and I think that was about the benefits of the city without the high prices. The Dublin prices are so expensive and not that, I mean, obviously parts of Cork are pretty expensive too, but, but Dublin prices are so expensive that people were looking and seeing what could they do, what could they make it work if they lived somewhere else. And places like um, parts of Cork City and indeed around the country um, saw, um, saw big increases. And that's, you know, for, for all that, um, there may have been greater mobility. We are ultimately a social species. We love clustering together um, uh, and you can see that in uh, not just a proximity to work, but a proximity to to family and to social networks and to, to leisure facilities as well. Um, that those are things that, that people do value and you can see that in the choices they make in the housing market. If you can look into the crystal ball there for a moment, Roland, what, in, in relation to mortgage rates and that, what, what does the next 12 months, 24 months hold, do you think? 
Yeah, I think uh, as you mentioned in the in, in just in the lead-in that there's there's been a big increase in interest rates on the, by the European Central Bank over the last eighteen months or so. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of, it's kind of signaled that they're they're done for the moment, um, and maybe the language and the mood music will change over the next three four months. They're a conservative bunch by nature; they'll do what they need to do, but they try and signal things rather than make drastic uh, changes. So I wouldn't be expecting any big fall in the interest rate in the first half of the year. Really, it'll only be in the, the maybe the second half of this year and into 2025 that interest rates will will come down. And even then, I think we should all expect interest rates to be higher uh, after, say, 2025 and later than they had been in the 2010s. That was a very unusual period with very, very low interest rates for a very, very long period of time. Mm. I don't think that's going to be normal. Um, so in terms of the activity in the housing market i think uh, a bit like you were saying with the you know searching for value with your with your with your mortgage mm. i i think those who have fixed their interest rates are going to stay put until those interest rates kind of reset to the market and it's only at that point i think we'll see a recovery in the the volume of properties put up in the second hand market now a standard 3 or 5 year fixed rate was 2.5% up to the middle of 2022 uh, but now a five-year fixed rate from Ireland's largest mortgage lender is 4.85. Is that going to continue to, to increase? I, I'd be surprised if it increased a lot more. I think the banks have priced in a lot of the, the increases that they've seen, um, uh, but I wouldn't be expecting it to fall that, uh, dramatically in this calendar year. If you listen to, and actually the, the chief economist of the European Central Bank is an Irishman, um, uh, Philip Lane, um, if you listen to what he's been saying over the last few months, uh, it's clear that the, the Central Bank is worried a little bit about kind of second round effects in inflation, that first you get the impact on things like energy and then it sort of filters through and then you get people looking for higher wages and then that could in turn uh, lead to a second round. So they're going to be quite watchful, I think, over the course of this year just to make sure that um, there aren't any second round effects uh, and then they'll probably start to reduce their interest rates. And I think we're going to see um, the Irish banks probably hold steady for most of this year um, before they take action in changing their rates. To bring them down? I know the ECB is expected to reduce its rates this year, but they're not sure when. So will will our banks follow on from that? I think so. Uh, we're kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from the US. In the US, the, the, the mortgage market is like a national one and it changes on a daily basis and you can see big swings in the interest rates on a daily basis and there's, there's lots of different players. In the Irish market, we only have a couple of, of, of lenders. It's a small market and they move quite slowly. And I think they will follow the ECB, but they'll follow relatively slowly afterwards um, compared to other places. So I do think the next moves will most likely um, be down, but not for a good while yet. What's the average age uh, of of a house buyer now? Presumably early to mid thirties. Would I be right? Yeah, it's 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 mid mid thirties now. If you look at first time buyers, it's 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 drifted up in terms of of the age um, over the last uh, fifteen years or so. From uh, certainly there were people buying in their in their mid twenties in the the early two thousands, and now it's really more like mid mid thirties as the age of the first time buyer. There obviously are of course people who buy uh, earlier if the circumstances are right, or those who choose to to wait until later or indeed not not buy at all. But I think the median age now is thirty five um, years old in terms of the um, the typical age at which somebody buys their first property. Uh, a texture, uh, Shane, just says, can you please ask Ronan, can we ever expect to see another Celtic Tiger era? 
Well, <laughs> I suppose what you, if, if, it's he, what he you mean by Celtic in, bra- in brackets, he says, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so I actually I, I teach at, at, at I teach undergrads in Trinity, um, and I teach them about the development of the Irish economy over time. And we have had what what uh, for want of a better name we call the Celtic Phoenix um, <laughs> after 2012 or so uh, up until 2019 2020, uh, which was a remarkable recovery in the number of people at work. Yeah. And if you look at that as a measure, that's something that that um, politicians would have been obsessed about in the 1980s when we couldn't find enough jobs for the people we had. So it has been an incredibly strong performance by the Irish economy over the last 10 years or so. Uh, some of that was planning and some of it was luck um, and, and some of it was international companies doing stuff here that they didn't do elsewhere. Um, um, but uh, I suppose the, the thing we don't want to see a return to is the unsustainable lending. Um, that was like the second half of the Celtic Tiger. And I think the central bank rules, while they're strict, they're strict for a reason um, given how, how bad the, um, the, the, the last couple of years of the Celtic Tiger were in terms of, of lending. So so hopefully we'll see more Celtic Tiger-like years in terms of jobs growth, but not necessarily in terms of, 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 of lending and spending. Okay. Ronan, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on again, Gareth. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, uh, Ronan Lyons there, author of the daft.ie report there, and also economist at Trinity College Dublin. By the way, another way to make big savings, and this is big, is by claiming tax back. It's another thing for some reason we seem to be quite reluctant to do, or maybe we, we just don't know much about it. The largest cash help available was through tax refunds, according to this piece in Charlie Weston's column in the Irish Independent today. Tax credits and allowances often go unclaimed, benefiting revenue and not the taxpayer, uh, the average tax refund, wait till you hear this, through taxback.com, the average tax refund was €1,880. Unclaimed credits include medical expenses, relief, rent tax credit, remote working relief, marriage relief, third level tuition fees relief and flat rate expenses. And um, the, the, the thing about these tax rebate companies is that they do the work for you. You just provide them with your uh, tax details, your PPS number, and after that, they liaise with the revenue commissioners on your behalf. It's all legit, and uh, as I say, it's uh, it's something not to turn your nose up at because uh, I would imagine, unknown to most of us, there's some money due back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Gareth O'Callaghan here for PJ, who will be back with you uh, tomorrow morning. 83 More and more Cork families are opting out of traditional religious ceremonies like communions and confirmations. Celebrant Geraldine O'Neill says milestone, milestone and age of reason ceremonies are on the increase as a result. And Geraldine joins me. Good morning, Geraldine. Good morning, Gareth. How are you? Very well, thank you. Nice to chat to you. Um, this it, it was a slow trickle at first, but now it's becoming more increasingly common, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, it was a very slow trickle, but it is something which I think is part of a, a new way of thinking about rituals and marking occasions that we have always left in the hands of the church. But now we look at it and we go, well, maybe we can do this ourselves. Maybe there's a way that would suit us. Mm. And so therefore, people are either groups of parents are coming together to, ca- to organise an age of reason ceremony to celebrate occasions in our lives. What, uh, what is milestone and what is the age of reason ceremony? Well, those are the names I'm giving it at the moment, but actually generally they're called milestone ceremonies. But age of reason, I think, is that age between about 8 and 11 when a young child is aware of themselves as an individual and not attached to their mum and dad, but actually forming their own opinions. And that age of reason is something that we have marked as tribes for many, many years. But um, when, you know, as Celts, as we ourselves are all Celts, Mm -hmm. um, and all a community... Those ages have always been marked by certain rituals. And then, obviously, the church took over a lot of those rituals. And so, therefore, um, they, were, they were not always carried out in the same way. Yeah. In the same independent way that we have now. The age of reason, uh, that, that stage in life, that's always been there, uh, down yes. through the millennia. Yeah, and, but, and, uh, and the milestone would be that age where they're just turning into adolescents. Right. So you could look between the ages of, say, 12 and 15. So where how, how, again, have, how, how have they both changed now, Geraldine, compared to, say, our parents' generations? I guess we are... We know more about raising our children than we ever did. Mm. And that in that way, we're all learning how important it is that we begin to pay attention to those stages and to celebrate them. Mm. And, and are, are young people, I would imagine, more questionable and more curious about what we would have taken traditionally as being... You know, the the, the yes. religious rite of passage, the ceremonies that we all adhere to without any mm. questioning. I take yeah. it that younger people are now saying, why am I doing this? Well, I suppose that's exactly. They're, they're now taught to ask why. Yeah. And certainly when I was growing up, we were told not to ask why. And so therefore, they would ask, why are we celebrating this? And we would talk to those young people when we meet them about the importance of of honouring their new independence and their new status. And in a way, they would question. I I don't think they accept ceremonies where people talk over their heads. 
that they want to be part of it. Mm. They see themselves as part of their community and we as parents recognise them as part of our community. Now, the traditional Catholic church rights are in big decline, aren't they? They are generally, yeah, without a doubt. But, uh, you know, there's also, we have a lot of people coming from Eastern Europe who are supporting the Catholic Church and who are turning up at Mass every Sunday and, you know, have a deep religious belief, which is is terrific. Mm. It's terrific for the Church that this is happening. But then there are other people who have come away from the Church, and particularly if they've had, say, a humanist wedding, where they have been involved in the planning of that wedding. And they have then come to their child being born and they have the naming. And now more and more they're saying, and what happens after that? You know, do we don't want to do a First Communion. How, how do we do it? Mm. And we as humanists facilitate that and work with them to create very individual ceremonies that really reflect that group which would be very different from a group from another part of the country, maybe, and have maybe very different interests. But we can include all of those things in, and in, in the ceremony itself with the parents. There's a growing number of parents that want humanist ceremonies for their children instead yes. of the traditional First Communion yes. and Confirmation. Do they, yes. tell, do they tell you why they want that? Mostly, just as I said, simply because they had, an, a, you know, they had a humanist wedding and they enjoyed that experience. Right. And that now they're looking and saying, well, what do we do now? And groups of parents are getting together and deciding, all right, there's enough of us now. Maybe we'll go into the community hall and we'll organise our own ceremony. Can you describe a, a typical milestone ceremony for me? Um, it would be, it's difficult to describe because they are always different, but more than anything, we would welcome them. They might have somebody like a guide parent with them, who, somebody who is willing to vow to be, to have their backs, to keep, you know, to stand by them. That could be, they could decide their parents are their guide parents, or they could decide an adult friend is going to be their guide parent. Mm. So promises are made. Um, promises are made and then as a community they make promises to those children so there would be we also try to put together some moment where the children themselves are speaking about themselves and they write a thing which I call a bio poem which is a poem about who they are but also is mixed in with um, words from their parents so it becomes a little sort of self-portrait if you like some of them are too shy to say them, in which case their guide parent will do them. Um, they choose the music, which is always really interesting. <laughs> so the children them, themselves decide the music and the children themselves decide the various rituals that we might have. We could have something like a sand ceremony. And the sand ceremony means all of the children bring some sand, different coloured sands, to the ceremony itself and they pour them all together mm-hmm. and then they empty them out so that they have this symbol of those children joined together at a particular moment in their lives and I always say you know just as the sand can't be separated 
this is a group who have experienced something special together. Which is a beautiful experience, really, because um, we had it at our, our, our own wedding there a few years back. And it, it does have an extraordinary effect, not just on ourselves, but also on the, 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 the congregation. Absolutely, because we love symbolism as individuals, as we love a symbol. So it could be the lighting of a candle. They could light 30 candles. Mm. You know, it can be a sand ceremony. It could be the planting of a tree. Um, and then they write their wishes and hang them on the tree um, so that um, when the tree is planted, their wishes are, are part of it. You must love your work. I, I know it's, you know, in many ways, Geraldine, it's not that far removed from your your previous life at Graffiti Theatre Company because it, it I suppose it, it requires a huge degree of creativity and, and imagination, doesn't it? It does indeed. And I, I think I continued to do it because I've always wanted that connection with young people and I'm always fascinated by how they're changing. So... In going into a classroom and engaging children in a creative act, and that can be as simple as at the age of reason ceremony, them all um, putting up their artwork all over the place and recognizing their creativity. If we have a child who's a good singer, she might want to get up and sing. Another child might want to say a poem. Mm. But all of those things become part of the ceremony that marks them in another stage of their life. And that's symbolic, but it's important. And the, the, I think that the, the powerful aspect of it is that the young children, the individuals, select, make the choices themselves. For example, as yes. you say, if, if someone wants to dress as Superman, they can. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And like we're, we're now in a very, very different age where transgender is, is something yes. that's, I suppose, by many parents feared, but also it's, it's something that many parents find that once they start discussing it, they want to talk about it more. And yes. how, how do you address that? whole area because obviously this is something that's influencing children enormously it is indeed and to to some extent i would be more inclined to be saying to them i would like you to dress exactly as how you would like to on that day mm. and so therefore that reflects you so you can you know you can wear a dress if you if you're comfortable in a dress and you're happy to be in a dress then today is the day that you must you know celebrate yourself and who you are and honour it. Yeah. So I wouldn't be addressing it particularly because that's not my area. Yeah. But uh, I would allude to the fact that they're perfectly free. Yeah. To, And also, I do think that, you know, um, there's a lot of expense involved in First Communion and First Communion clothes. It's an awful, it's a big relief for some parents just mm. to say, well, actually, you know, let's see what we can use afterwards. Why, you know, let's let's see if you want to wear your Halloween costume, where you're comfortable in that. Mm. You know, anything that suits them and makes them feel happy on the day and comfortable. One of our callers, Geraldine, is asking, is humanism a religion? Is it just Catholics, Christians who go for the solution? <laughs> or do Muslims, Hindus, etc. do it also? Well, um, okay, humanism is about an ethical belief system. We, be, we, believe, 
we have a belief system based in science and the natural world. So you can be religious or non-religious. It doesn't really matter. For that moment, we're all human beings together and we are all recognizing our common humanity. Mm. So anybody can be a humanist. Can you be a, you can be a Catholic humanist? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We believe in each... Well, you can, but I suppose when I say I believe in science and the natural world, then I'm saying I believe in things that are proven and are yet to be proved. Right. Yeah, I I think it's fair to say that in recent years, people with that blind faith aspect of life that so many previous generations lived by, that's gone these days, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's hard for some generations to accept. But um, I also think it allows a great deal of freedom in how we begin to live our lives here on in. Mm. Let's talk for a moment about humanist funerals, because I know in recent years, um, that's something that has drawn a lot of people's imaginations to, because, uh, you know, um, funerals are the saddest occasions to be to be at and to prepare for. Yes. So, so how does a humanist funeral, how is it different? A humanist funeral celebrates a life. Right. That is at its core, that we wish to pay homage to say goodbye. Now, yes, it is absolutely heartbreaking and tragic, but it is important at that stage to say, this is a person, this is who they were, for people to speak about them, for people maybe to have a piece of poetry that reflects who they are, for the family to have some rituals maybe involved in just saying goodbye. And that can be just very simply... You know, they might have a hurling stick on 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 the um, coffin. They could have, you know, they mark mm. those people. They mark their lives. And to walk into a room when you know people are in just their worst state and to be able to say, look, let's sit for a moment and just think about how we can celebrate this person. And it brings a good deal of consolation. And once again... But it doesn't, it doesn't bring any promise of eternal life yes i was going to ask you that that's something that it 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 doesn't come into the ceremony does it whether there is eternal life no 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 it doesn't right it doesn't i mean i suppose the basic premise of that is as long as we speak about them as long as we tell those stories they live on in our hearts and minds That's a beautiful thought. I'm just looking back here. The 2022 census, 14% of the population selected no religion in the questionnaire. One year before mm-hmm. that, a survey by the Association of Catholic Priests found that only 30% of Catholics in Ireland attend Mass weekly. That's a drop of 91% from 1975. Can, mm-hmm. you, can you see that trend continuing? I think it will. I mean, I think the more people begin to question and also I mean there simply isn't the people around to carry out the Catholic services anymore Mm. and a lot of churches are closing and a lot of churches you know don't continue on in exactly the same way but there's a kind of interesting movement going on particularly in Britain where they're turning those churches into community centres almost 
and that during the week other things happen right in the church. And I just think that's a lovely thing that we haven't looked at yet. Or maybe we could house some people in those churches. Mm. You know, there is a sense that it has to become other for us to continue on to engage with them. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just big empty spaces. Well, that's it. Tom just texted to say the Catholic Church really let itself down during the COVID crisis, uh, which is an interesting mm-hmm. point. Geraldine, it's lovely talking to you, and um, thank you so much for sharing the little bit of time this morning with us. Um, if, if, if anyone would like to get in touch with you, I know you have an email address. Can I give out the... Uh, Yes, you can indeed. Which yeah. is info at O'NeillGeraldine.com. So it's O'NeillGeraldine, so, yeah, all one word. If they go on to the Humanist Association of Ireland website, they will discover exactly how many celebrants we have all over the country. Right. All right. Great to talk to you, Geraldine. Thank you so nice much. Nice to talk to you too. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye now. That's celebrant Geraldine O'Neill. Fascinating conversation there. And I think it's a conversation that will be had more and more and more. And I think COVID really was a dividing factor in, in humanity. I think it was something that just came out of nowhere um, and obviously divided the, the, the world community on so many different levels, uh, economically, politically, socially, and even from a debating point of view. It, it was just, I think it's a time that we'll, we as a generation will mark out for the rest of our lives. And hopefully, although the virologists won't agree, hopefully we won't have a repeat of it and uh, there won't be anything as bad again. Cork people turned out in their droves once again on Saturday for the 12th week in a row to show their unwavering support for the people of Palestine. Martin Scholl is co-chairperson of the Cork-Palestine Solidarity Campaign and he joins me now. Good morning to you, Martin. Good morning, Gareth. How are you doing? I'm doing well and it's wonderful to talk to you and I think it's a testimony to not just the people of Cork but to that 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 sense of of anger that's out there and and the fact that clearly nothing is being done to turn this around or to stop it isn't that the case yeah, absolutely absolutely that is absolutely the case and it's uh, you're absolutely correct i mean the numbers that are turning out um over the last 12 weeks and we'll be having another uh, march this saturday are unprecedented um, we've had between 700 and uh, 1,500 people um, at, at our demonstrations, which is, as I say, it's unprecedented. And uh, people are coming out and, and you know, to, to express their, their, their uh, you know, their, their sense of solidarity with, with the people of Palestine, but also the frustration about the fact that, as you said, there's actually nothing actually being done to, to stop this. To stop this was clearly a genocide that's happening at the moment. Now, I was just looking at some of the quotes that people have said that from, from our, our social media, the, the reason that people are turning out each week, each week, week after week, uh, our demonstrations on the Grand Parade. And I was listening to your program yesterday, and you were talking to that young lad from Carrigaline, and about you know the importance of reaching out, and you know the issue of isolation, and uh, how that possibly has changed. But I just I was struck by one quote that I noticed there. Uh, what what but one person said why they are turning out week after week, and it's, and it is this: it is very it is very important to turn up to show solidarity 
with the Palestinian community of Cork and Ireland. And I, I think that's something that we can relate to, that, that if we can do nothing else, we can turn up and say, we are there with you. We recognize you as fellow humans. We recognize your humanity. We see what is happening to you. And we see that that is something that we can relate to. And I think that is particularly important, important that that is that when we look at what is happening in, in in, in Gaza and in the West Bank, because there is an ethnic cleansing ongoing in the West Bank as well, yeah. that the basis of that solution has to be that we recognize the common humanity and that, you know, we have this awful situation where the European community, which obviously we are part of, seems to be able to sit back and just watch from a distance what is going on, with almost as if the people there, that this is happening to them, it's all right because it's them. You know, it's somebody else's people that we don't recognize like you know uh, but I think for people for people in Cork clearly people in Ireland I would also think for people throughout Europe and throughout America they are not them they are us we recognize our common humanity and you know when we see those awful 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 pictures day in day out of children being, dra- being taken out from the, uh, the the bombed houses like you know the bombed apartment blacks and you know and you know, those, those things that it's, you know, you'd wish to turn away from, but you can't turn away from. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's, that's why people are there, like, you know. But also, you mentioned, uh, th- th- sorry. Yeah, yeah no, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, please, you, you keep talking, Martin. Oh, okay, yeah, but it, it also is, and you point to the fact that that's, when we see this, we, we see, you know, nothing actually being done. I mean, obviously, there's the, you know, you look at, at America, like, you know, what, what's happening in the States now, like, you know, that's when there are huge uh, demonstrations uh, uh, in favor of Palestine. I have a son living in, in San Francisco, and he said it's the first time that he's seen widespread uh you know, demonstrations in favour of Palestine, like, you know, so it, it there is this thing, we see it in Cork, but it is in, in lots of parts of the world that people are calling for action and it's just simply isn't being um, acted upon, like, you know, that uh, we see America continually uh, vetoing, even, you know, a, a call for a ceasefire, like, which is the most basic thing uh, that is needed at this stage and absolutely, we have to have a, a permanent ceasefire and a humanitarian uh, intervention in 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 in, um, in, in Palestine, in, in Gaza, particularly. But, yeah, yeah. But Netanyahu has he has rejected any calls for for a ceasefire, and I think because he has the support of the American government, certainly Joe Biden, um, he feels that yeah. he he has a blank sheet; he can do anything. I mean, in the light of the the uh, the, the killing of Saleh Al Aruri, the, the the deputy leader of Hamas, who was killed in that Beirut explosion, this this war is expanding, and and uh, you know, security analysts are now saying that they expect this to continue for at least another twelve months. Absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, this is the thing, like, you know, that we've, we've had three months of this and we, we've already seen the, you know, the obviously the casualties, the killings, the, there obviously there are so many bodies, maybe eight, seven, eight thousand bodies underneath the, the rubble that, that uh, aren't even accounted for at this stage. But, uh, I, but also the absolute destruction. Uh, that that has taken place in in Gaza in particular, and obviously, I, I'm, there is 
an ongoing ethnic cleansing. Also, in the background, in in West in the West Bank, uh, you know, the the settler violence is uh, increasing. There, people are being taken, you know, pushed out of their homes and so on. But uh, I, I was just looking at uh, the world of the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and according to them, and this this these are figures for mid December that seventy percent of Gaza's homes are damaged or destroyed. Um, and 50% of the buildings are damaged and destroyed. Now you're talking about uh, buildings like Byzantine churches, mosques, schools, hospitals. Um, this, is, this, this is where we are at at the moment. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in six months' time, six months' time, a year's time, when they're saying that, that combat operations are going to continue, um, where, where people don't have a place to live? There'll be more destruction taking place. Uh, hunger, starvation uh, are, are, are rampant now in, in, in Gaza. And even then, it's not going to be over, because while uh, Netanyahu has said that they are going to continue until... Uh, you know, Hamas is destroyed, they, and just just what does that actually mean? Hamas is destroyed. Listen to to what the the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, has said, and on the twelfth of October, he said, "It's an entire nation out there that is responsible." It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not being aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true, and we will fight until we break their backbone. Mm-hmm. So. Hamas isn't just fighters. Hamas is, and uh, the 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 Itmar Ben Kavir, the Minister for National Security, says when we say Hamas should be destroyed, it also means those who celebrate, those who support, and those who hand out candy. They are all terrorists and should be destroyed. And now, obviously, uh, he's talking about the the you know the voluntary emigration. Uh, uh, of people from Gaza, and uh, what kind of voluntary emigration do you have when your your whole uh, ecosystem has been destroyed? Like you know, but as I say, like after the destruction of Hamas, and that just seemingly means just about everybody in in Gaza, there is another stage that that uh, Netanyahu, is, Netanyahu is talking about, and he's talking about the. Uh, you know the de-radicalization of Palestine society. So it's a this is a war on Palestine, and it's the a, solution es- that cle- they're es- ethnic cleansing, isn't it? It, it is ethnic cleansing, and this is uh, it is ethnic cleansing, and it is uh, you know genocide in, in terms of Gaza, and I think that that is clearly being recognised now. Like you know that I mean, for instance, uh, the. Um, Cork, Cork City Council has passed a number of motions uh, you know, over the last number of years on, on particularly what's happening in in the West Bank and in Gaza. In in uh, uh, November of this year, passed a number of motions. The one that that uh, recognised that uh, what was happening in the West Bank was the intensification of the ethnic cleansing uh, in uh, of that area. Now, rightly, the government has accepted the motion. From the DOI last year that said that a that um, what is happening in what what has actually happened in terms of the West Bank is the uh, the de facto annexation. Yeah. In other words, Israel has effectively annexed the West Bank into Israel. Yeah. Israel essentially r- rules through you know, all the lands between the river and the sea. Fourteen million people, seven million that they recognise as citizens of Israel who belong there and 7 million who they do not recognise as belonging there. Martin, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
I, I don't mean to cut you so, off. I'm just I'm running out of time, but um, and and I want to just give a mention to the there's a, there's a, another uh, protest next Saturday, isn't there? There is another process. This Saturday, we uh, it's at one o'clock on the Grand Parade. We will be referencing the South African. Um, uh, Reference uh, referral to the International Court of Justice uh, uh, for Israel for the crime of genocide, and we'll be calling on the Irish government to back that and to do some action like uh, the Occupied Territories Bill, which they have to at hand to to do something positive about uh, stopping this genocide okay. and saying that we, we we do not accept it. Thank you, Martin. Listen, I'm, thanks I'm, very much y- for your time. Thanks for giving me the time. Take care. Yeah, you too. Well, PJ will be back with you tomorrow morning here on the Opinion Line at 9 o'clock. It's Gareth O'Callaghan on this lovely Wednesday morning and our number is 0833 96 96 96. Let me take you back in time. Who remembers this? Well, back in early 1973, that was the signature tune for a brand new radio show on Radio Era. Now, there was no 2FM, there was no Radio 1, it was just one radio station taking on an entire country and one broadcaster taking a big risk with what was going to be a one-hour-long talk show. Consumer affairs, news of the day, and then it evolved into something even bigger where people thought, this guy's pretty good. So he might be able to get us a washing machine, he might be able to get us some money for Christmas, he might be able to put us in contact with uh, an agency that can help us with various issues. And the Gay Burn Hour was born. And then, about six years later, it was so popular in 1979, it became a two-hour-long show, and it was the Gay Burn Show, as everyone will know. Whether you were working around the house or whether you were dossing off school pretending to be sick, that music reverberated in every house in the, co- in the country. Dear Gay, Letters to the Gay Burn Show is a sweeping handwritten history of a radically changed Ireland and a fitting tribute to Ireland's best-loved broadcaster. And I'm joined by its author and Gay's daughter, Susie Byrne. Susie, good morning. Good morning, Gareth. Happy New Year to you Happy New Year to you. And just before we talk about Gay and the letters and the book, how's your mum? She's okay, Gareth. Thank you for asking. She had a bit of a fall on Christmas Eve, so unfortunately, yeah. fractured her pelvis. So she's in 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 hospital at the moment, but she's right. in super form. Um, no, she's a she's a, a very strong woman, so she's on in recovery. But she's good. She's good. Well, please te- please tell her I send my love and best wishes. I will, of course. I will, of course. This book is magnificent. I, I, I got it, actually. Paul and my wife bought it for me for Christmas. I sat down on Stevens' Day and read it for two days from cover to cover. It's, it's more than a book. It's more than an anthology. It's, it's like a history of handwritten feelings and views and fears and reactions. And uh, Gay took it on himself every morning at nine o'clock on, on Radio One to read out these messages. And I think the, the, one of the beautiful things about the book is that many of the letters are replicated as they were written. They're actually there in written form. And the first thing that I thought of was th- these these letters, most of them were written at a time in that individual's life when they were terrified, when everything had gone wrong. And tell me, where did the idea come from? Um, the idea originally came, Gareth, when Dad died in um, November 2019, RTE wanted to do something to um, mark his legacy as broadcaster, and a lot of it had been done before. So they 
they initially went into the archives and, and just to kind of look at something new and immediately the apparent the the letters in within the radio program had never really been touched um because for obvious reasons it was easier to do the late late show and and tv documentaries and stuff so Sarah Ryder, who uh, actually lives in Cork, she uh, she is was the producer, and she produced a beautiful documentary called Dear Gay, mm-hmm. um, and that when even when they went into the RTE archives um, and the radio, it, it, the jumping really from the files was all of these letters that had been written. So she started to go down the road of the letters, and um, we this documentary was aired in I think it was May 2020, and but she herself, as you know from broadcasting it, there was so much stuff there that she she literally was had cut had to cut so much out of what she could have put in there was a wealth of 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 letters that she just couldn't fit into the documentary so it was a bit of a, a little snapshot in time and from there we realized that there was a book in it and um and that this stuff would would all be gone for it would just be sitting there and uh, never to be seen again if we didn't do something with it and it, it is as you can see the letters and the people's emotions and their ability to to write down in, in a very very short way their life story and the, the more i went into it the more that's there and you realize that this was this is their history and how they were able to write and and tell their story of which some of it's fabulous but a lot of it is heartache and dark and mm. um real unfortunately but it's it's, al- it's also beautifully chronicled by your your good self i i, I it's just it it's a beautiful read in that along with the letters um you talk about your dad and you talk about home life and you talk about uh, the fact that there was a gay burn that went out in the morning and he was on the radio and he was on the television but then there was a dad who came home in the evening and yes. it, it's beautiful the way you share some of the times that none of us ever really got to hear about of gay the dad mm-hmm. yes and that was very important um, I think in 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 doing the book, it, it, it probably took me a year longer than I initially anticipated to do it um, because I wanted to well do the letters justice first of all and to I'm not a historian so I want needed to make sure everything was was chronicled correctly and you know even in, in, in curating the letters there's so much more in there than I even got to, to put into the book but to try, try and reflect in the chosen letters that they would reflect the letters that weren't that aren't in there. That that, that these were the letters that really um, could show that there was behind every one of them there was another hundred letters kind of saying the same thing. And then once I'd kind of done that, then you, you automatically in doing the research, you're keeping brought back to times in your own life that, oh my gosh, we, I was in school or certain things were happening. And even like the, the big headline stories like Christine Buckley or Anne Lovett or um, the gay referendum and all of those things. I, I, I love, for a lot of it, I was in school, I was a child, but then you remember snippets of it. Mm. So I, so that's what, um, then when I, when I was putting the narrative around it, I had little, had gone down my own little memory lane and they, they, they publishers and um, RTE really wanted us it to be a book that wasn't just about the it, that that was very much about the letters but gave the flavour of, of our lives because we were we were products and, and part and parcel of all of that society change that was going on 
and even my mum and dad were both, you know, they were brought up in the harsh moral Holy Catholic Ireland that was of the time. They were of that. So to, to and Northern Ireland and all of the things that were going on at the time were as normal in our lives as they were in anybody else. So that's why I kind of tried to bring the personal side into it without making it into a... A, a personal memoir uh, either yeah. to just give little snippets of, of our family life which was which was as it was at the time uh, it's important to remember of course gay had a very strong faith all of his life so mm-hmm. it, in in many respects to to go up to go up against a lot of the aspects of the traditions that we were not meant to question it must have been very difficult for him I think it was. I think he had a very strong faith. He was very, uh, dad is very black and white about things. And he, he often said, you know, um, in relation to faith and God and that he said, you know, he always found it very amusing that people that didn't believe in God and didn't believe in, in the church, um, actually got much more angry and everything about it and he used to say like I don't know why you're getting so annoyed about it if you don't believe in it why is it causing you so much problems um, and he and then you know people say well you know God doesn't exist and, and his attitude to that was well there's a 50-50 chance and nobody's ever come back to tell me he doesn't exist so <laughs> yeah. I'm as likely to be right as you are so let's just let's just leave it at that so um, that was his, his kind of as he'd say his curmudgeon way of people that were annoying him but but I think his faith, he, I mean, he, ultimately he was a, an entertainer and a broadcaster and it was all that he ever wanted to do. So I think his, and his training in, in Granada and BBC before RTE or during his RTE years, he, he, he always had to step outside his own personal beliefs or everything in order to, um, to give justice to the person who was, he could never influence even politically, you know, or, or religiously, you know, that they, that he had to, he, and that's what what comes across even in the letters, you know, that, that there was a, 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 he believed people and he believed what they were writing to be true. And that's what gave, gave them the trust in him that they kept writing. So I think the challenges were there, but he was very, you know, um, he was very uh, able to compartmentalize things into what they were at the time. Like, I mean, even the, the, the lots of interviews that I uh, listened to, and read and watched over the years about um, homosexuality and all of that stuff that was such a taboo subject at the time. Hard to believe we, like my kids, cannot get over the, even that any of that existed in the strength that it did. But I think he he just took everything for what it was and believed that everybody was entitled to their own point of view and their own experiences coloured their lives and who was he to say that they were right or wrong so I think that, that I suppose when you're in that business as you know yourself you're hearing it all of the time so you're not stuck in in a in, a, in your house listening to certain things you know you're listening to the world and and um and even within RTE you know that that whole theatrical world like he was probably much more exposed to um homosexuality and gay people and all that kind of stuff than anybody in, mm. or, or in that theatrical world if there's it's it there's more, more people there so you're open to it you see it every day it's great it's fantastic so all of while that was all very odd in in the in the context of the social um the culture of the time and the church and the strength he could see that there was a whole world out there that that was outside of the church and people having to live lives away from this church because they couldn't live their life in in within it 
Yeah. So I think that all of those influences were there every single day for him. And was that a world he brought home with him in the evening or was he able to once again compartmentalise that and say, right, I'm home now and the family is with me here? Or, you know, I, I remember somebody asking, I wonder does Gay sit around the table at dinner time and everyone discusses the Late Late Show. Did that happen? Never, never, never um, at all. In fact, the opposite. We, He was, I mean, he was very... Like he would do the radio program and then he would leave the radio program at 11 o'clock in the morning, have coffee with the team and then straight over to the Late Late Show offices. And because he was producer of the Late Late Show as well as presenter, it was immediately into the next, into that Friday night show or Saturday night at the time and the, the next thing. And then he would, he would, he would work um, till about six or seven in the evening and, and drive from Donnybrook out to host, which is about 30, 34, 40 minutes. And that was kind of time and at the, remembering that there's no, mobiles there was no anything so he would literally sit in silence in the car and would by the time he came out home he would go upstairs do his post he's always in mountains of posts open all the posts very regimental and upstairs into the walking clothes and he would usually go for a walk for about 40 minutes and come back and that was the end of it there was no that day was over and I think as well, there was my mom you know she was uh, at home with us at the time and um so she was listening. So she did. They didn't need to discuss things mm. because she had heard the program. And she knew that it was so mentally draining that you had to just literally finish it on the next day. And you can even see that in the in the archive files because the archives are all filed per day. So each program file is today's, tomorrow's, etc. And they're fantastically kept. But you can see there that that even within the program, there was a very, very strong, hard-hitting, dreadful letter. And they would have taken a commercial break afterwards and moved on to something completely light and completely different. Yeah. So... The program, because I even as a you know when you think back to those days, like I don't remember the Gayburn show as being heavy, hard, um, depressing or anything like that. So I remember the kind of upbeat, jaunty tune and funny and Dad um, imitating or <laughs> his funny voices and everything. So so it was very it was such a mix. He was able to go from light to dark to light again. Very seamlessly uh, which which well, I'd say was also a saviour in his own sanity yeah I, I, you know when I think of it and you know when you talk about the archives for those who don't know every letter and every every radio show running order uh, and any correspondence of that was filed away in that that day's manila folder and was mm-hmm. archived then completely detailed and stamped and signed and whatever so all of those records from 1973 right up until 1998, they're all still there. There, it, there must yes. be a huge number of boxes of of running orders oh, and massive. letters. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely massive, and they kind of they were they're more organised from 1980. And the first kind of seven years were, were, were a little bit all over the shop, um, yeah. and not kept as well. But then the program was much lighter. Then it was only really in the 80s that it became um, the program that it was, and. So there, I mean, it's it. There's boxes, and they're not they're not even held to get the boxes even in. They're held offsite, and in, in um, I think they might be even in Limerick. There's a huge big offsite. So they're to, to even say right, I'm coming into the archives. It was nearly a week in advance. You had to get say you were going in, and they all the boxes were brought out, and and then I was given my white white gloves to go through things. And um, but I always found I found it amusing as well because Dad would bring home the papers every day, and um, he'd bring like literally the 
Daily Telegraph, the Mail, the Irish Times, the Independent, all of them would all come on a big pile every day. And you'd be right in the middle of an article, reading an article, and you'd turn the page and the next page would be gone. So then when I went into the archives, you know, you could see the, all the bits of the newspapers, he just ripped out bits that she yeah. used on the radio programme. And I just remember that frustration as a, as a teenager and as a person in the house growing up, that, that you'd literally be in the middle of something and you'd turn over the page and the next page wouldn't be there in the papers. You'd never get to see it. So, so there was all those kind of memories came yeah. back when I was doing it, which is fantastic. But the, the, the archives are, are the archives are incredible. And I think mm-hmm. from talking to the Late Late Show team and the Gay Burns Show team over the, the, the last months, the um, because of the radio being audio, the, their files are in incredible order because they had to be, whereas the Late Late Show, um, because it was a running order and it was a television programme, the, the, act, the, the actual information is not as, as there isn't as much information because it's it's all there, but the the radio program because it's very off the cuff and the, there's little bit snippets here and there. There each file is 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 fascinating in its um in its contents of each yeah. day and and you know things that you would find that that um you, you think you're coming across something massive because there'd be loads and loads of letters and then it just died. There was you know there were somebody people would have this flurry of letters in about something and you thought you'd come across something amazing. But then it it might just have lasted a day or two, Didn't and then there was other big news ones. Yeah. There are topics in the letters that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned in an article I wrote for the Examiner last weekend that young peop- younger people who would never have listened to gay, who would never have understood that uh, 40 years ago we were we were living in a society that they wouldn't recognise today. I mean, there's, there's, there was one letter that really struck me from um, mm-hmm. a mum. And th- the thing was, Susie... Back then, this came, I think, back in 1981. Uh, this particular woman spent the entire day alone because her husband was working, the children were at school. And she says, Dear Gay, can I let off a bit of steam? I'm here all alone. I have no friends that I can talk to. It was wonderful to switch on the radio this morning and hear your signature tune. I forgot about my depression for two hours. Thank you for that. That's an extraordinary thing. It's something that most people wouldn't even think of these days. Oh, it, I, I mean, I because I found that myself. I'm fifty now, and I I found that whole um, that isolation of people and. Even the thought that everyone was that first of all you couldn't play you couldn't listen back so either you heard the radio program or you didn't, and that the, those those letters that that um where you, people and there's there's a um another one I think as well where there's a guy who's gay and he was he's also been kind of taken out of a depression listening to the program and he um or the, the, that lady that. that that was widespread everywhere, yeah. and that feeling that that the the door that the kids went to school, the door shut, and you were you had two hours on your own, and you were listening to everything that was going on, and then hearing a letter being read out by somebody who had exactly the same life as you, and realizing that you weren't alone, and that that and then and knowing that the next day there might be another letter and a bit of advice and. That feeling that that people were listening and suddenly thought, "Oh my gosh, I am actually so." What's happening in my life is happening to other people 
all over the country and it's it's not the most abnormal thing because I, I even forget because we're obviously all Dublin you know I was speaking to a friend of mine and um, before, actually this time last year her mum had just died and we were up in Castlebany at her mum's funeral and she introduced me to her her mum's friends and she, she at the very end she said this is Gay Byrne's daughter and I don't know what I did but I reacted in some way and i oblivious to myself and she phoned me afterwards and I was chatting away and everything but she phoned me afterwards and she goes I hope I didn't offend you by introducing you as Gay Byrne's daughter and I said God not at all I hadn't I just hadn't been for ages <laughs> and yeah. she says you know you've no idea we were the border counties you have no idea what it meant to my mum and all her friends in all little dotted cottages all over my and Fermanagh that they, they that radio program was their lifeline to Dublin to, to the to the south to what was going on in all of the troubles and all of that those counties where you know we were in every we were forgotten we were this that and the other and she said, you you like that two hours of every day gave them first of all time on their own with 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 gay and listening to all yeah. the other people's stories and then going out into the village and, and and the chat and things were going did you hear this did you hear that and gosh I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow and that 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 compulsory listening and I didn't really I, I had got I thought I got it before but really her words to me at, and after this funeral and this is only last year were so stark it kind of gave me a whole different reflection on that time because it is hard to imagine even for us now it's hard yeah. to imagine that there was one radio station everyone was listening to it and there was so much going on there was no social media no mobile phones and if you think about people who are in the little villages all around the country isolated and women at home who were very smart very intelligent and had to be at home and then and and they were this was their way of of they didn't have time to read the papers and so this was their way of hearing everything that was going on so it was like i as the story builds and as you uh, read through the book and really understand what people are saying it's incredible the power of of what was going on at the time one letter, and I'd say your dad got a great laugh out of this. One letter to the show, which is in the book, suggested that Gay must be considering a sex change, judging by how much time he gave to discussing gay issues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's some great ones. Like that, just, and the sheer frustration, whatever. And people kind of coming in. I think there was a, like, you know, the, and the more you talk to like people coming in, men coming in from work, whether it's farming or, or um, work in cities and this constant, did you wait to hear what happened? What, what was gay and gay said this and gay said that. And he's, he, he, well, he, well, that's not what gay said. And, and you can just see, you know, that's absolute for God's sake, that man is destroying everything. <laughs> <laughs> Susie, it's been a joy chatting to you and congratulations. It's it's a book everybody you, should Gary. read. And I can I just say one thing? I really hope you've yes. got another book in your mind somewhere uh, because oh, you have a beautiful <laughs> gift for writing. You really do. Well, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. so, And thanks for having me on. Oh, Lovely delighted. to talk to you. Great to talk to you again. And best of wishes, best wishes to you and the family for the new year and everyone. Cheers, Susie. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's Susie Byrne there. Uh, uh, the author of a wonderful book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Dear Gay, Letters to the Gay Burn Show. It's number one this week. I don't know whether uh, Susie realises that, but number one in the bestsellers, deservedly so, uh, handwritten history 
of Ireland. Well worth checking out. Now, Operation Transformation is back on our tellies tonight. We have spoken in the past to participants who loved the experience and have maintained their weight loss. But the show has come in for a lot of criticism over the years. Sinead Crow is a nutritionist and co-founder of Intuitive Eating Ireland and she has repeatedly called for the show to be axed and she's on the line. Hi Sinead. Good morning, Gareth. How are you doing? I'm with there. I'm, I'm with you there the whole way, and I suppose I, sh- I should be on the other side of the fence here, defending why it should be kept on. But I it just, I just find it, I, I find the whole idea behind it repulsive. Well, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, we've had 16 seasons to date. I think it's coming into the 17th yeah. season now. So I was doing the calculations yesterday and that means there's 80 participants that have come through that show. And I've personally spoken to 12 of those mm-hmm. and every single person reported that there was huge negative implications to their physical, mental and emotional well-being after they finished the show. So we're talking about long-term implications. And really, there's nobody talking about how this rapid weight loss kind of eight-week transformation, how it's unsustainable, unrealistic, and long-term, it can come at a huge cost to our relationship to food and our self-esteem, our sense of self-worth. The list goes on. But also, I would imagine, to our relationships with other people. Yeah, I mean, like, absolutely. I mean, one of the main things, actually, that came from uh, listening to the participants that have been on the show is that they felt so lucky to get on the show and the ho- their whole community um, rallied around them and they felt really supported and held for th- those eight weeks and they really, they didn't want to let people down. And so many of the people told me that once the show had ended and they went back to their everyday life and they regained the weight, they became very socially withdrawn and isolated themselves because they were ashamed to go back out into their community. They felt that they had left people down, which mm. is crazy. I I was checking around, I mentioned earlier on today, Sinead, I was checking around to see if there's any other television network anywhere, uh, English-speaking television network in in Europe that does a show like this, and I, 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 I can't come up with a single one. Well, because, you know, there was obviously the biggest loser was a big one that was on in the States and um, Australia and so on. And there there has been other weight loss shows, but actually every country have now come away from that. In fact, mm-hmm. in a lot of countries, they're banned. They do not allow weight loss shows to be on the television because they know it contributes to weight stigma. It's not realistic. It's actually quite harmful for a majority of people, you know, contributes to disordered eating and eating disorders. I mean, it's incredible that in 2024, when we're talking about health, we're still getting these eight-week transformation programs on our television come January. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. Is there an element of of a, a sort of an egotistical lure to the program for, for people who would be interested in taking part? Because I've always thought that if you're very keen to lose weight, you either get in touch with a dietitian or a nutritionist or you join the gym or you start walking for three, four miles a day. Well, I, I think that it's a sad state of affairs that a lot of people might feel like their back is against the wall and feel a bit desperate and feel like they don't know where to turn because our health services, it's not adequate. People don't have access to nutritionists and personal trainers and psychologists that they might need to avail of. It's not readily available. So when these opportunities like getting onto a show and getting this help for this intense you know, intervention for eight weeks, of course it would feel very alluring to a lot of people. And then I suppose from an audience perspective, we all buy into, I mean, I've watched the show for years and years. Um, in more recent years, it's more from a, you know, I'm investigating it really and looking into what's been said and not said. 
but I've watched it and I can see how we we see these wonderful people that are often, you know, really struggling with lots of different issues, whether it's trauma and loss and it could be anything from fertility issues to whatever it might be. And therefore, we, so many of the, like so many people across the nation will relate to these stories and we, we, we invest into these people and we do want to champion them on. So we buy into the story, but ultimately... What has been sold is this rapid weight loss transformation. And a diet is not a cure or a remedy for a, an unhealthy relationship with the food or to work through emotional traumas, etc. Yeah, and I, what I found humiliating down through the years, now I think they've changed this, I haven't watched it for the last couple of seasons. You get, you get a, an individual who's overweight, a man who walks out on the catwalk in a pair of boxer shorts and nothing else. And he's standing beside a fit, elegant, stunning looking presenter. And he's there for the whole world to see practically nude and overweight. I cringed every time I saw it, so much so that I just switched it off. Yeah, so I mean, look at, I, I need to say and be clear that in the last number of years, I do know that they, the participants have been given the option whether they want to go on in a T-shirt and leggings and be more fully clothed, right? So we, we will say that that has changed as far as we know. But the other side is you're absolutely right. The legacy of Operation Transformation cannot just be brushed under the carpet. We all remember the years where God, people were standing on the scale. They were reduced to tears. They were yeah. shamed and belittled and ridiculed. And we can't just now say that in the last number of years, just because we've made a few tweaks and we're a bit nicer to people, that that's okay. There's that. It's not okay because the legacy of that show lives on. If they wanted, they could absolutely start afresh and say, if we're really interested in helping the public in terms of public health, this is what we can do. We can take away this, you know, diet, this rapid weight loss, this transformation, this physical transformation that they're talking about and really look at all the other facets, all the, all the other pillars of health and support people in terms of nutrition and movement and sleep and stress management. There's so much that could be done here, but we know, and I've personally spoken to people that have been involved in terms of producing and been involved in the show, and they've been very clearly told me they won't do that because it won't get the viewers People want to buy into the stories and they want to see the transformation. Yeah, it's 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 reality television, I suppose. It, it's it, reality TV, absolutely. Yeah, and, and as you say so correctly, you know, I, I mean, I'm overweight. I'm, 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 I'm admitting it. My doctor said, he says, you need to lose a couple of stone. And I say, we're, we're right, probably won't be January. I'll start in February or March. But it, I think the point here is that weight gain, particularly a lot of weight gain over a long period of time, is also accompanied by issues that need to be dealt with, as you say, along with the weight loss, and they're not being dealt with on a live television show. No, absolutely not. And I know that, like, once the show this the show ends and the support, the psychological support, etc., like it's it's gone, you know. And mm. people are heading off into their own lives and trying to figure figure it all out. And you know, even just to touch on something you mentioned there, Gareth, about like, oh, my doctor said I need to lose weight. We also need to look at yes, weight is one determinant of health, but there are over a hundred. And research is quite clear that if we actually put to one side the pursuit of the weight loss, um, because that's 
all about restricting our diet and trying to be in a calorie deficit. And it's all really quite miserable because none of us like to be hungry. But instead, if we really want to improve our health, what if we shift our focus to healthful behaviours, like asking ourselves, can I get some movement in today? Can I think about maybe eating three or four more portions of vegetables this week? Can I think about optimising my sleep? And when people actually redirect their attention to health, which is not the same as weight. This is the mistake we're all making. We're just told, oh, you know, you're X BMI, so you need to lose weight. But how exactly do we do that sustainably and effectively? The answer is, is that for majority of us, when we're focusing on weight loss, the statistically, it's going to be quite low that we will sustain that weight loss long term. So we need to understand that it's not the way forward to be telling people just to head off and lose weight. It's very easy to do that. But how do you do it? Yeah. And from from your contact with some of the individuals over the last 16 years, have 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 the programs resulted in long term weight loss? Absolutely not. And this is why if they really were so sure that this um, show and this eight week diet worked, they would be showing the data from the 80 participants that have already done it. But they won't do that because they know if they went back to look over the 80 people that have already been involved and to find out how many of you have maintained this weight loss two to five years post the show, the reality of it is it would be, I would imagine, very low, probably in the region of 5%. 5%. Wow. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's a, like, I can't yeah. say obviously, you know, yeah. exactly, but it would be very low. It would be very low and because I know from definitely the 12 that I've spoken to, um, they all spoke about the weight regain after the show. And it's quite rapid, actually. It can be really, really difficult for people. Like, it's one thing if we might gradually be, be gaining weight and we're kind of adjusting, you know, we might not feel it as imminently. But, you know, when you go on a drastic diet, the weight regain can be really difficult emotionally and psychologically. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, you know, when the studio lights go out and your phone stops ringing very quickly after yeah. the show finishes, sometimes the fridge, unfortunately, can become your best friend again. Well, absolutely, because we know that we we might be using food as a comfort, as a mask, as a way to soothe, all of that. And that's not wrong, right? We don't want to demonize that. Mm. But we need to understand that this, like, really restrictive diet is not working for people. Yeah, yeah. Just while while you're there, Sinead, uh, there was a report in the papers there, I think it was yesterday, about Veganuary, that a lot of people have have decided to give up eating all meat for the month of January. Mm-hmm. And a lot of nutritionists are saying this is not a good idea. Would you agree? Yeah, I don't think that heading down the vegan route, um, you know, as kind of like this, it, it, the veganism, I suppose, it's not, not everybody chooses a veganism as a form of dieting, but it can be a mask. And there's a lot of people promoting it out there as a form of weight loss. And this is where I have the issue. If you're choosing veganism because that feels like the right um, path for you in your life and what, your own personal choices, that's up to yourself. But it has been promoted as a weight loss. And for a lot of people, especially young people, we actually need to be like, in terms of um, nutrition, you know, there's a lot of deficiencies that can occur when people remove a huge amount of foods from their diet. And veganism is quite restrictive. And unless you have the the understanding of nutrition and you're, you have the capacity to prepare lots of different foods that maybe like, because I'm not saying, you know, veganism is inherently unhealthy. There are people that know how to cook and know what foods to introduce into their diet. But I've met teenagers that are going down the route out of veganism and they're living off um, you know, t- um, tato sandwiches that's, mm. that's not going to be conducive to health 
And finally, just coming back to Operation Transformation, and this is a question I've decided to leave it till the end to ask you. A lot of people watching the show, committed to the whole ethos of the show tonight, will try to emulate the individuals on the show who are trying to lose weight. Now, without any guidance and without any direction, a, a professional direction, that can't be a good idea for viewers, can it? Because it's across the board, like calorie restricted diet. So basically you just, you, you sign in and you follow whatever individual that's on. And if their plan is 1800 calories or 1600 calories, then that's what you're automatically going to be following. Now that could be incredibly low for like that. It does not sustain most adults. Like mm. it's just crazy. So we need to be these blanket like this, you know, that we can all, the, the, the nation that the, how many millions of us that can, we, we can just slot into five different diets plans. Absolutely not. I mean, if, you know, I would, well, obviously I'm encouraging that people would not put it on at all at home. I think not only for ourselves as adults, because the messaging is awful, but, you know, there could be teenagers, young children, like don't underestimate our small people have big ears and they hear the conversations, they see this show on air and they're absorbing the message that, you know, weight loss is something that we all need to be striving towards and that going on this diet is going to be quote unquote healthy. So there's, I would be encouraging people to not view it and to not support it. Mm. I mean, there's a reason the Department of Health um, back in, was it 2021 or 22, they issued a statement saying that they grave concerns about funding this show moving forward. Now, they funded it that year, but now they no longer do. So we need to understand, you know, this is having a weight loss show in 2020. We need, we need to, you know, make sure we're not supporting it as best we can, you know? Yeah, certainly with the message that look at the television, weight loss can make you famous, particularly for young, vulnerable individuals who are having, yeah. you know, anxiety issues around food and that. Sinead, it's great to Absolutely. talk to you and have a good new year. Happy New Year to you, Gareth. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Me. Take care. That's Sinead Crow, their nutritionist and co-founder of Intuitive Eating Ireland. You listeners just texting, asking what was the name of the Gay Burn book again? It's Dear Gay, Letters to the Gay Burn Show, A Handwritten History of Ireland, and it's uh, put together, compiled and chronicled by Susie Gay's daughter. Wonderful to chat to her earlier on today, and uh, we all send on our very best wishes for a, a speedy recovery to Kathleen. Luke Kelly Wilmot from Candy Crunch Cove gave a young mum a Christmas to remember this year. He's here to tell us the story. Luke, what happened? We we decided that we, we really wanted to do something nice for somebody this Christmas. Um, you know, we launched, I suppose we launched the business in October and um, we started thinking about it around kind of the middle of November. But nothing was coming up. We couldn't nail down any idea. And that was until the 23rd of December when we got a message from a mother up in Kildare and she was in a panic and um, she had said that her daughter had only mentioned freeze-dried sweets the night before but the problem was that she missed the cut-off date for the Christmas delivery and I said look if you know of anybody that's driving from Cork to Kildare you know we can give it to them or if you're willing to make the trip down we can meet you somewhere so lo and behold she messaged back and she was like look I'm just going to come down you know it's, it's a two and a half hour drive um, and I was like Jesus fair play to you Straight away, I called my brother, who's my business partner, and we said, look, we need to do something for this this woman. This is this is the Christmas giveaway we, we've been talking about. Mm. And she had no clue, genuinely no clue, that we were going to surprise her with anything. She asked us, did we have maybe an extra box for someone else? And we were like, ah, look, we'll see what we can give, yeah, you know. Basically, we decided we were going to buy her a 50-inch smart TV, put a big, <laughs> big bow on it and everything for her, and uh, we gave her a load of free sweets as well. And she was delighted. 
Like she was, I think she was more in shock, if anything, you know. Mm. God, a, a shock, I'd say, and and a whole load of different re- emotions and reactions. That's a beautiful gift. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. We were like, we were saying, have you ever seen the movie Jingle All the Way? Yeah, with uh, yeah, we were like, it's just like that. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of my it was one of my favorite Christmas movies growing up. So I'm just saying, mine too. So, so you had a mission to fulfill. We had a mission to fulfill. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I was great. I'm was delighted. Great. It's that's such a it, it's a real feel good story, and there aren't enough of them around at the moment because I, I was just saying there yesterday that so many people are facing back into this week, and it for a lot of people it's the most miserable week because it's been a very difficult Christmas. But I think it's stories like that that just warm people's hearts we've never forgotten where that feeling is you know yeah 100% like when we when we got into the business you know this and this is our very first business we're all about giving back you know what I mean Mm. we we said we always want to be giving people something you know people who maybe ordered people who have just kind of helped us along the way we've always wanted to, to give back to the community so yeah, it was it was just a great opportunity for us. Uh, we were we were probably more excited, you know, than than she was. So it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. Like, yeah, but you know something, it is. It's all about giving back. How is the business going? Tell me a little bit about you know where the concept came from. Yeah, so myself and my brother Jake, like we had spent a bit of time over in LA in 2021, mm-hmm. um, and like people that we were with they were all talking about fr- like freeze-dried sweets but obviously they call them freeze-dried candy yeah. so what are they talking about like so we got our hands on some and we were like this is this is mad I think we I think when we were there we, we tasted freeze-dried skittles and it just completely transformed like the texture and the flavour and everything we were saying light bulb moment mm. so we came back we were kind of like humming and hawing a bit for a while and then during the summer just gone, we were like, "Fuck, we'll, we'll just do it, you know? Mm. So we did it, we bit the bullet and launched in October and since then it's just gone from strength to strength, you know? We've moved from my kitchen to shipping container and now we're moving into kind of a larger space now, so... Somewhere, where, really somewhere with a window, I hope, yeah? <laughs> shipping container, <laughs> wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, it's just been great. Yeah. Really well, from small seeds come great trees, you know. That's, that's, I, I've always thought, like, if your heart is in it, you will get there somehow or other. So, it is, 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 is it online? It's online. Yeah, it's all online at the moment. There were a few kind of small discussions about maybe putting them in store. We're going to hold off on that for another while. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna you know take it bit by bit. We don't want to bite off more than we can chew at the moment. Yeah, but yeah, hopefully in I suppose twenty twenty four now we will start seeing some of our products in the stores. Fingers mm. crossed. That's brilliant. What's the website address? It's just crunchcandy.ie. Crunchcandy.ie, and I know there's a great presence on TikTok, which seems to be the way to go in terms of advertising at this stage. Absolutely. Like, my personal background is video marketing, so right. I would I would have a fair grasp on how to kind of work my way around social media and TikTok. So that's 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 a huge part of our business at the moment. It's it's just you know, if you're running an e commerce business and you're not on TikTok then you're you're losing you're potentially losing I suppose thousands in sales every month. Mm. You know? You have to be able to use it and use it correctly it's definitely something that you that that's required 
if you're going to be opening an e-commerce business. And obviously, I, I, I would imagine there'll be room to employ extra staff as time goes by. Yeah, like we were already thinking about that, especially now over the Christmas period, we really could have needed somebody. But now as we're kind of ramping back up now again, it's um, it's something that's on our agenda. Great. Listen, give my best wishes to Jake, Luke, and good luck for 2024. I really, really hope out of all the bad news we've been listening to over the last few days that this is shining bright and continues to. So it's great to talk to you. That's it. Thanks very much, Gareth. There'll be uh, plenty, plenty more giveaways and reactions on our social media as well. So keep an eye out on that. It's everything is just crunchcandy.ie. So that's great. Yeah. Happy New yeah, Year, Luke. Thanks a lot. Happy New Year, Gareth. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Luke Kelly, Wilmot there from Candy Crunch Cove. Today's show is produced by Emer O'Hay, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. Thank you to Wayne on the desk. PJ is back tomorrow from 9. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.